Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Talking Christianity Apologetics. My name is Josh Gibbs, and today we are doing a debate review with uh, Dr. Stephen Boyce. He is going to be participating in this debate review as a critical text proponent with uh, Jonathan Sheffield, who's going to be representing the, the TR side. And uh, the debate was, was between Dr. Boyce and Dr. Riddle uh, about a week ago with uh, um, the topic being the pericope adulteri in John 7:53 through uh, 8:11, which the thesis that we had for that debate is this. Is the PA an authentic part of John's gospel? The PA should be rejected on external, internal, and historical grounds. And obviously we had Stephen who took the affirmative and went first, while Jeff took the negative and he went second. Uh, but stay tuned with us. We'll be right back uh, after this brief introduction video. And we're going to have uh, Dr. Boyce and Jonathan Sheffield here to review that debate and to give two different perspectives um, on the, the PA, one from a TR view with Jonathan, Jonathan Sheffield and then the critical text view with Stephen Boyce. So stay with us just a second and we'll be right back. Make sure today that you leave this place knowing that you are saved to the glory of God. Thanks. That one I'm going to choose. If you believe that, friends, you don't know the gospel. Is that the wonder of the cross is that no one gets injustice. If you, if you end up under the wrath of God, it is because you've rejected his provision for you and you are justly punished for your sins what the scriptures teach. I think the Bible does teach that God desires the salvation of all men. He has provided uh, for uh, the, the salvation of all men. And therefore, anyone who, who ends up under the wrath of God, it is because they have rejected his provision for them. And they are justly punished for their sins. The question that seeks to provide an answer to this question, for whose sins did Jesus die? The extent of the atonement asks the question, for whose sins did Jesus die? There are only two answers, two possible answers to that question. Either Jesus died for the sins of some people, or Jesus died for the sins of all people. All right, so I'm going to give you guys a brief rundown on what to expect uh, in the upcoming weeks, upcoming episodes, before we jump into this uh, with Dr. Boyce and... Uh, Jonathan. So what's coming this week actually is going to be an eschatology, not an eschatology debate, it's a Eucharist between myself and Matthew Broderick. That'll be on the 31st at 2 p.m. Central Standard Time. Uh, then after that, I've got an eschatology debate coming up on the 14th between myself and Stacy Turbeville, and uh, that's June 14th. Then Kevin Thompson's going to come on on the 28th. At 2 p.m., we're going to be talking Calvinism, uh, some of the tough questions about Calvinism, predestination, um, election, um, adoption, just some of the, the general terms that, you know, you'll have in a conversation between a Calvinist and non-Calvinist that predominantly takes place in Ephesians 1, Romans 8, uh, Romans 9, Ephesians 2, um, and John 6. So we'll see where we go when it comes to that side of the conversation. Uh, and then we've got one more that we're working on. We'll see how it ends up. But if it's able to happen, that'll be a, a debate with Dr. Boyce on total inability. Um, but stay tuned for that. I'll be able to give you more information as that uh, comes. So let me cut over here to uh, my interview scene. 
And for those of you who are still watching, I do want to let you know if you could help us to get this message out there for the live stream, for those who would like to watch it live rather than going back and tuning in later. Uh, Facebook obviously doesn't allow us to share the, the stream to multiple groups at one time anymore. So it takes a lot longer to get the, the word out there. If you could help out with that and just share it to your, to your timeline or your news feed um, or like it or subscribe, all of that good stuff, just help, help get the message out there. But anyways, I think that's about all I've got. I do want to let you know also if you, want to, if you prefer to watch or listen on audio um, platforms as opposed to the video platforms, you can do that as well in Google, Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, all the major audio podcasting platforms as well. So anyways, let's go ahead and get into it today. We're, we're doing the debate review and uh, we're going to go through the video. But I want to get Dr. Boyce in here and, and uh, uh, Jonathan as well and kind of get an update on where you guys have been and, and then we'll jump into it. But Dr. Boyce, thanks again for coming back to do this debate review uh, with Jonathan Sheffield. Thank you, Jonathan, for coming on tonight as well. So it's good to have you both. Oh, thank yeah, you, Josh. Josh. Good, good to be on again. And actually, I was I was um, I got a notification earlier that that Dr. Boyce, you were. You were doing a, a, another debate review, um, and and kind of kind of another mini debate with Leighton Flowers. So it seems like anytime you're doing a broadcast with Leighton, that you're going to follow it up with a broadcast with me. Um, but I don't know how you're doing it. I mean, two of these things in one day like that—that's just crazy. It, it's it's a lot. In fact, uh, with Dr. Flowers, ended up going almost three hours today. Uh, that was unplanned. Yesterday, I had an interview with a apologetics podcast on Ken, uh, so I ended up doing that for a place actually apologetics channel in Malaysia. Wow, that's crazy. Don't ask me where that came from. It was just an opportunity I took, and then. Tonight, uh, obviously, we're having this review, yeah. so it's it's been a long week. It's been yeah, a very long busy. week. Yeah, and um, Jonathan, you've got some pretty exciting news coming up. I don't know. Can you announce what's going on with you with you yet? Yes, I can. Okay. Um, so starting this Friday, uh, March 29th, I will be uh, debating uh, Dr. Richard Carrier. Uh, this will be my second debate with Dr. Richard Carrier. Uh, but this one is going to be on the topic of the resurrection and dealing with my uh, question that I pose. Why weren't the rulers of the Roman Empire able to falsify the resurrection of Jesus? So uh, I've already submitted my opening statement to Dr. Carrier, and he'll be posting it on his blog at richardcarrier.org this Friday. And he... Uh, we'll be following up with that response on Saturday. Uh, it is an open platform, so uh, others are able to go in there and participate in the comments section. And uh, that debate will last probably for about two weeks. And then we're going to have our post-debate recap and kind of rehash our arguments on modern-day debate sometime at the end of June. Uh, so definitely looking forward to that discussion. Very cool. That's exciting. That's awesome, man. So, well, I've got to ask: Are you going to turn that into? Are you are you going to be able to publish that as a, um, as one of your one of your videos that you usually do? Yes. Uh, so that will make for another cartoon. Uh, I'm already working on the cartoon right now for my debate with uh, Matt Delahante on. Uh, 
on the four gospel authors. So once I finish up with that production, I will move into uh, my cartoon uh, recreation of my debate with Carrier. So that should be a fun production. That's awesome. Yeah, so go check that out, guys. Follow Jonathan on that as well. And if you haven't had a chance to, uh, go to Soteriology 101 and listen to that original debate uh, that Dr. Boyce had with uh, Leighton Flowers uh, about a week ago as well. I, I, I messaged um, Stephen after the debate. I'm like, dude, that was one of the top five debates, in my opinion, just because the conversation flowed so good. It felt like you guys um, really hit some really good points um, in that in that conversation. And it just seemed like to me, man, that's that's one to check out. If you're into debates, if you're into watching that kind of stuff with two guys that hit each other hard but still kept it fresh, that was that's a good debate to watch. So, anyways, let's go ahead and jump into this. We've got a few different points that we're going to examine, and I think as we go through it, I'll play the I'll play the video, and then you and uh, Jonathan are going to interact between the two of you, and I'll just kind of sit back and and listen and, and guide it, unless something comes to mind, and I I think I want to bring it up, but. Um, it yeah. should pre predominantly be between the two of you, and then um, obviously, Jonathan, you're representing a TR side from a little different angle. Uh, you've got more of a historical angle from the ecclesiastical side of saying, well, where's the chain of custody? I, it seems like to me your argument is primarily the chain of custody and, and what was received in the churches and accepted in the churches um, and was uh, kind of circulated throughout um, the church world back then. So, and, and then, yeah, even so. Anyway. Yeah. I wanted to say really quick why, um, I, when you and I talked, Josh, and I want the audience to know this, uh, I was astonished that at the end of the debate, I went back and counted the amount of Facebook messages, text messages from family and friends, uh, that had already sent me a response to the debate before I even clicked end call. Uh, people have to realize most of my contacts uh, are TR. Uh, I grew up in the TR movement. Ha more, more than half my family is TR. Half my friends list is TR. And so I was getting a response from those people. And it was very, very different from some of the responses I was seeing on Facebook. Uh, and so <clears throat> when Josh, you and I talked about maybe doing a review um, it, it dawned on me. I was like, you know, I'm going to check with Jonathan on this because I want to bring somebody on to review it. Who's unbiased yeah. and actually disagrees with me. And, uh, <laughs> so Jonathan, uh, doesn't share the same uh, position that I do, but I know that in a review, he's going to be uh, neutral on this because he can't side with my position, but he also has, you know, a, a good character about him where he's going to be fair. So, I thought it was important enough to do that. And I didn't want to have somebody just come on here and say, you were right, you were right, you were yeah. right, because that's not really a good, fair review. Yeah. <clears throat> Dude, I've got to say, like, to me, that speaks volumes about kind of you and your character, because who who wants to have a debate review with, with someone who's going to disagree with them? Like, if I had the choice, dude, I'm bringing somebody on who agrees with me. We're going to get a <laughs> bunch of yeses. Like, but no. Anyway, so that's good, Jonathan. I'm glad that you that you accepted and said you'd be willing to do this. So that we'll have a little bit of uh, back and forth and some good profitable dialogue. And I think that's that's going to be edifying for everybody who watches. So, all right, let's uh, let's get into it. I'll cut to the fifth nine minute mark here in in the video. I should be able to see this on the screen. Um, this should be, I think this is a rebuttal period. I could be wrong, but I think it's a rebuttal period. 
So we'll play. I'll just play it. We're gonna go to the the minute, the one hour, one minute, one hour and five minute marks, and you guys just tell me when to stop and when you want to make a comment. Yeah, run this one through. Run this one up to about a minute and, and uh, two, and we'll, we'll two, I'll tell you what the we can discuss it. Okay, perfect. Here we go. And it's mentioned in Luke, and uh, as well, I think it's uh, perhaps also in. No, it's in. <laughs> it's in Matthew and Mark also, where there's a reference to after the the Last Supper, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Uh, audio. Well, given that John doesn't have a record, can you guys hear the audio? No, nah, it's kind of choppy. Yeah, it's, it's real choppy on my end too. Dang, that's real choppy. Um. And while you're while you're doing that, I can go ahead and he he. It's hard to hear it, but what he was talking about was the Mount of Olives, uh, right there, because one of the words uh, that I had mentioned in my article, not even in my introduction, and uh, before we kind of get into the video, and and Jonathan can share his view of this, I, I was actually a little bit disappointed at how much of my introduction and opening statement was not covered in the cross-examination. I would actually say most of the points that I touched on uh, were not covered in the discussion time of tra uh, transferring questions. Most of his questions came from my article, which I think was grossly misrepresented. And the, the, the study and the theory that I was going after and building off of, and one of the words that I bring up uh, is that the Mount of Olives is not a place listed by John. And Dr. Riddle was claiming the fact that, are you, are you insinuating that John didn't know this mountain existed? And it's like, well, no, of course he knew it existed. Uh, as much as me living in South Carolina and as North Carolina exists, um, I obviously am very aware that it's familiar with the location. The question is, is in a, a small section of John, there's a large amount of words that we do not see anywhere else. And the Mount of Olives is a place that John does not reference in his gospel. In relation to in my article, which was not really, again, presented very fairly, I was comparing the Johannan words or the non-Johannan words with the Lucan words uh, that were in reference to the work that Kyle Hughes did, which we'll talk about his work a little bit later. And that if you go to Luke chapter number 21, where the family 13 manuscripts have this story uh, right in that section, the introduction of a few of the words are the same. The idea of the Mount of Olives or through the same uh, terminology there was used by Luke for early in the morning Whereas John did not use that Greek term for early in the morning. He used a different term all the way up to the resurrection of Jesus in John 20. He used a different Greek term. But Luke did use that. And if you were to go to Luke chapter 21, verse 38, it says, Then early in the morning, same word that's in the pericope, uh, he went out and stayed on the Mount of Olives, which is the same phrase used in the pericope. Uh, and then it says right there, it introduces the story. If you look at verse 53 of John 7, it reads very similar to how Luke introduces that section that's in the family 13 manuscripts. That point was the main emphasis of the Mount of Olives. It's not that I implied that the Mount of Olives was absent from the mind and knowledge of John. It's that the syntax as a whole seemed to fit in the introduction there to Luke. Uh, Jonathan, do you want to comment on that? Yeah, I, um, you know, I, I think from my standpoint, um, I, I know a lot of the focus during the cross-examination uh, 
you know, you know, impression on your opening argument where you were trying to establish a history and origin for the passage. Uh, you brought up uh, Papias. <clears throat> you brought up, uh, you know, a lot of the external evidence that sides with the uh, exclusion of this verse. And, you know, you did touch on the, uh, you know, internal evidence, but you also suggested that obviously this is speculative. It doesn't really... Uh, you know, it can be interpreted either ways, and this doesn't really uh, drive home the position on where this needs to go. So I, I thought from my standpoint that uh, maybe a little too much time uh, was invested by Dr. Riddle into uh, cross-examination on a very split, uh, speculative uh, nature of the debate. And... Uh, it lost an opportunity for Dr. Riddle maybe to spend more on the internal evidence, its history and transmission through the official churches of the apostles, um, and its uh, uh, as it being invested in uh, their scriptures and lectionaries. Um, so, I, you know, from my standpoint, I, I think it was just an opportunity lost to really focus on the external evidence where a greater case could have been made for its originality to John. Okay, so here's, I think what I'm gonna have to do until I uh, get a computer that has got a better video processor, I think what I'll do is just play the audio only on, on my uh, Mac Pro, which sure. you'll, you guys will be able to hear it. You won't be able to see it on the screen, but- uh, That's fine. That's fine. That's fine. We'll, we'll st it, it'll still get the job done. So anyways, all right, here we go. Well. I think it's uh, perhaps also in, no, it's in, it's in Matthew and Mark also where there's a reference to after the, the Last Supper, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Well, given that John doesn't have a record of the Last Supper, it's not surprising that the phrase Mount of Olives doesn't appear in that text. The other thing to take into consideration is if we believe that the author of the Gospel of John was John the Apostle, the son of Zebedee, the brother of James, don't we think that John the Apostle would know what the Mount of Olives is as a place? Wouldn't he know that Jesus often went there? So if John the Apostle is the author of, of John 7, 53 through 11, it's not surprising that he knows that term. And so that would be one example of an argument that Stephen makes that just doesn't make sense, quite frankly. Okay, if you could pause it right there. And, and that kind of goes back to what uh, we were just describing is <clears throat> he's misrepresenting a massive amount of research on a big plane in a small sentence. As I demonstrated that the Family 13 manuscripts was the main pursuit in that part of the article, which, by the way, was not in my presentation. I didn't even mention that in my presentation. Um, there's a bigger work that was being done in that section of the article, and that was taking the Luke syntax, the Johannine syntax. It was looking at them side by side. It was examining the seven Lucanisms that uh, Kyle Hughes had found doing a, a master's thesis for Dr. Dan Wallace. And I actually found three additional Lucanisms in the pericope that Kyle didn't have in his list. Uh, and, and I was comparing them to the introduction of that section that the manuscripts of Family 13 have in Luke's gospel, showing the introduction is consistent with the Mount of Olives there more than it is 
in the passage of scripture that Jesus was being portrayed there in, in the text. And to, to just be said as well, and, and I'm sure this will come up as well, uh, you know, the, the article was meant to chase a theory that was being presented in the academic world. And anybody that reads the article, I even stated that no conclusion can be made on the, the syntax alone. And that even in those discoveries, I still did not affirm it belonged in Luke, but it was also tied into the fact of how many Lucanisms attached themselves to the way the Didascalia document quoted the story and attached those words to Didascalia following Kyle Hughes's lead on that, which by the way, Kyle Hughes had published. I, I feel like Kyle Hughes was kind of put down a little bit in some of the discussion I saw. Kyle Hughes had, Kyle Hughes had his word published in the academic uh, side of things. In fact, uh, Dr. Riddle had mentioned Keith's work on this. Uh, and I don't know if Dr. Riddle knows this, but Keith and Kyle Hughes had a conversation. You can actually find it on the internet. They had a dialogue with each other uh, on uh, Kyle Hughes apparently sent his work to Keith. And Keith actually said that none of the information would necessarily change his position, but it, that it should be considered. And it was excellent work. And he was actually giving praise to Dan Wallace for signing different kinds of things like that to his students to do investigation work on. So Keith did not look at that and say, well, this is just pointless. Or Keith didn't look at that and say, well, that, that that's just a, a weak argument. That's a weak theory. Keith looked at it and said, yeah, it doesn't really change my position, Kyle, but that's great work and it needs to be discussed in the evidence. But even Kyle Hughes does not affirm that it belongs in Luke's gospel. We're trying to trace the origin of why did the scribes of Family 13 which, yes, are probably around 1,000, 1,200 A.D., which most that have discovered and, and researched the Family 13 believe the mother manuscript is 7th century. Why did that manuscript tradition put it in that place? And is there syntactical reason to believe that? So I, I, it needs to be understood that section in my paper was, was, in my opinion, grossly misrepresented and treated as a, a terrible weak view when it's actually an academic view that's been published and even Keith is acknowledged should be considered. So let me see if I can sum this argument up and I want to get and toss it back to you, Jonathan, and, and see yeah. if you want to go with this because it seems like it seems like to me um, what what Riddle is is arguing for is the internal support for this being um, this being uh, the autograph from John that John wrote it. And, and you're saying, well, it looks like it's more Lucan because of the external support showing where they placed it in the Family 13 manuscripts. And not only that, but but the specific wording, it looks like a, it looks like it might be Lucan in, as far as its origin, as far as the wording. It looks like it might be Lucan as far as the placement from this family of manuscripts. And, and Jeff is saying, well, it looks like uh, to me that it would be um, Yo and Ian, it looks like it's the wording that John would would have used because he's used it elsewhere, and so he's looking at it from more of an internal, um, an, an internal support for his argument in, in in referencing the Mount of Olives. But um, and that's just my take from looking at it from the outside. But Jonathan, you guys have got more knowledge about this than I do. So what's your take on it? As far as Jeff's argument on the internal, and it seems like he might be missing a little bit of the, the external references on where the placement is in the Family th 13 manuscripts. Yeah, um, I, I, I guess first off, just to comment on the Mount of Olives statement. Uh, I mean, we, we do have documentation uh, from Eusebius 
reviewing the history that John was aware of, uh, of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He did have time. Uh, it was in his churches, uh, which shows that it was authorized. So he was familiar with their works, and uh, he approved of what had already been written before he uh, set out to write his. So obviously he had time to obviously digest what was already uh, provided by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, in terms of the placement of um, uh, the Pericope Adultery at the end of the Luke, um, you know, you know, from my standpoint, uh, this really goes into the very nature of uh, the history of the lections, the canons uh, that uh, was set up very early uh, by the ancient churches um, as an Anglican. You know, we subscribe to the 1928 Book of Common Prayer, and so way our our churches are set up and organized uh, to review scriptures. Um, and this is nothing against Dr. Riddle, uh, but I, I believe he comes from uh, a tradition outside of uh, the liturgical um, ecclesiastical bodies, such as the Greek Orthodox, the Anglican Communion, or the Roman Catholic that uses this uh, system or election cycle as part of its uh, divine liturgy. Um, and, you know, when we look at and we find the election uh, where the, the PA is actually found at the end of Luke, you know, it, it is an issue. It's something that we do have to investigate. Now, all that I'd like to say, you know, kind of quickly as we touch on the election cycle is, we know that the, the lectionaries, the, the way the, uh, the apostolic churches were ordering their service in order to deliver the message of salvation uh, to its congregation was set up very early. We know uh, from Eusebius that there was already a dispute at the beginning of the second century between the churches of Asia Minor and uh, Rome on its... Uh, uh, on its celebration of the date of Easter. So it, it pinpoints at the beginning of the second century that the East and the West were on an opposite cycle uh, for how they were conducting their divine liturgy and their order of service. Uh, we see this back in 190 on uh, the Passover with uh, Pope Victor I. Uh, Eusebius is setting up canons uh, in the fourth century especially in light of the system that was set up in Alexandria. Uh, and he has in his letter to Copernicus, you know, what his intention was for setting up his, his canons. And we even see uh, Constantine writing to the different churches in the fourth century after Nicaea to try to get everyone on the same page. So when I, when I look at the, uh, the election cycle and what I can gather from it is uh, even later into uh, Christianity as other groups like the Georgian church, the Armenians are developing their election cycles. Uh, they're obviously looking at some of this information and they're setting up their order of service. So for me personally, when I look at and see why something is, the PA is being placed in Luke at the end, um, it, it really dictates uh, from how they're bookmarking, how their order of service would be. Now, why at the end of Luke? You know, for me, and once again, this is just 
my understanding just from the history, but it is my speculation, is that at the end of Luke, and we, we see that in the Eastern Orthodox churches, they're assigning it to the Feast of uh, Plagius on October 8th. Uh, so it seems to indicate for me that you're trying to associate this passage with uh, the day of repentance. So they're trying to associate that where the woman in adultery actually repented uh, to kind of ease the minds of the congregation. So from my standpoint, obviously it is an issue. Why would we find it at the end of Luke? Uh, but you know, as we can see, we find it at the end of John uh, in its usual location. For me, what best explains that is the diverse uh, lectionary cycle system that we find throughout uh, the Greek, Latin, Aramaic, and Georgian churches. Yeah, and to add into that, I actually, I agree that a lot of the movement that happens in the manuscripts uh, because of the lectionaries, uh, especially in John 7, and then it's pushed later in, in John 8 in places, I do think that is due to the lectionary placements. And maybe the only part that Jonathan and I would differ on is I don't think that actually answers Luke's placement. I know that there's arguments that are made for it, uh, that, that it's due to that. I, I think that there's a syntactical argument to be made as well. And obviously Dr. Wallace Cal Hughes did as well. And the investigation took itself from there. But again, it needs to be noted that uh, there were a lot of terms that John did not usually use. You And again, I try to get uh, Dr. Riddle to understand this in the debate. It's not just one or two words because he would mention like, well, the sons of Zebedee is only mentioned this one time in Luke. Yeah, but you're talking about the whole book. I'm talking about in a 12 verse section. You're talking about 12 words uh, like the grammatase, the scribes. You're talking about or through for the word early in the morning and the Mount of Olives. And there's a lot of things, not just one or two and, and to clear it up, and, and if anybody wants to go back and read the article as well, I made it very clear that the forms of the words that were used here, not that John wasn't familiar with the words, although there are specific words in this story not used by any New Testament writer. In fact, it would be considered more classical Greek in a couple of places, specifically about where Jesus was writing on the ground. Uh, but overall, most of the words that are used here were not used in this form and that was very important to note, the form that it was used in here. Not that John didn't know the word or use a different form of it later. But again, I'm you got to remember, in the article, I'm attaching it to a second chart of Luke. Luke used this form in the same locations and areas that the manuscripts uh, of Family 13 have the story. So it's connecting it back to that. And again, I was chasing a theory in that part of the article. I was not making a conclusion and connecting its wording to how it's similarly read to the uh, Didascalia document, the Syrian Didascalia document. And so there was more going on to it than me making an assertion. And, and I guess the part that I guess I was most disappointed in was that the question time, almost all 15 minutes, were in relation to this one aspect, which could have would have took me 15 minutes or so like it has to explain that whole section of the article. When I gave numerous talking points in my introduction uh, that we didn't even get to touch on, as Jonathan mentioned. But um, if we could go into that next section, Josh. Yeah, let's do that. Audio. Okay, so this is going to pick up where we left off, and I, I think it's going to start out with me talking. So we'll just... Hey, all right. Thanks, guys, for the rebuttal. And now we are going to transition into our cross-examination. 
this is where the negative is going to go first. So, Dr. Riddle, you will be first to question Dr. Boyce. I'm going to reset the clock here. Let me let me just start with uh, my question that I asked you about Codex Alexandrinus. Were you aware of the fact that there's a gap there, and it's neither a witness for or against the brick-fed ultrarush? Yes, I've uh, examined Codex Alexandrinus very closely, actually, in much of my work, and there is a massive gap there, and it has been estimated by the words of usage and so forth that it would not fit there. Also, one of the other reasons that it is rejected, because Alexandrinus has a unique setup of chapter content that is given uh, for its reader, and it's not listed as a marking of the chapter content in the manuscript. Dr. Wallace has affirmed the same thing, that this story would not have fit uh, in that narrative uh, of the gap that is there. Yes, that section is missing. I've examined the manuscript very closely, but it would not fit. We can show how uh, it wouldn't have fit, and also it wasn't listed in the chapter, and reason that we're losing chapter contents that were given. There were 18 chapters in the uh, uh, book of John there in that manuscript. But, but, given, but given that there is that big gap there, you cannot, in fact, say definitively that Codex Alexandrinus is a witness to the omission of the Prickbed Ultrai. That's correct, correct, right? Well, since I don't use absolute certain terms, I would say there's a good possibility. So back to the evidence, would it fit? Can we prove it fit? Can we do the science and put words there like they did on the codex proven? Like, for example, and I don't want to get into this, the long ending of Mark, there was a theory that, oh, there was room for it. Well, that theory has been disproven based on size and font and usage, and it would actually have overlapped. We can do things like that to come up with a good reason. Would I stand uh, on a chopping block for it? No. Can you pause it right there, yeah. Josh? Yeah, so right, it's kind of like, I think I saw. I was, I, it, let me ask you this real quick. Um, it seems like this is one one point in the debate that some people have, have said, well, why would Stephen take this position if he's not willing to t stand on the chopping block for it? If it, if it is a, a great evidence that the PA should not be included, when some people s speculate that even if it doesn't fit in there with the text, the font, the size, and all of that, with the space that is given that it would it could be for a memorial for the election cycle or or something like that but but what would your response be to those who would say this is a point against Stephen that you know he it seems like he's conceding to this somewhat well uh first i wanted to i thought i saw a question down there about the syntax was there a decision made i want to be clear i don't think you can make any decision on the uh work of the principe on the syntax i don't think i think it should be in the discussion but i don't think we should make any final decision off of syntactical uh, usages or lack of again that was me testing the theory of the family 13 manuscripts but to your question uh, Josh, and I think Jonathan, I, I think Jonathan would agree with this. There's a lot of things that have heavy weighted evidence that I'm not willing to have my head chopped off for <laughs> because I don't want to deal in absolute certainty. Here's what we do know. Uh, even Bergen was interested in this manuscript and he was interested in uh, fitting, not fitting, and he really couldn't make a decision. Uh, but a name by uh, Cowper, uh, a man by the name of Cowper suggested that it would not have fit. And uh, there's actually a guy named Andrew Smith uh, at uh, Shepherd Seminary up, I think near uh, Raleigh or Durham, uh, the seminary up there. He did extensive work duplicating and remodifying and font sizing. And, and uh, he has proven and, and uh, worked 
through the manuscript and and because we say it's a massive gap. Basically, the gap is pretty much from John six fifty one, close to John six fifty one, and ending somewhere around John eight fifty two. It's it's a total of three leaves, if I'm not mistaken. If if my memory serves me correct, don't don't pin me on this, but I'm pretty sure it's three leaves front and back that are missing. It's about two chapters missing. It's not like we're missing half the book. Uh, we're missing just a section there, and it wouldn't take much to figure out whether or not 12 entire verses would have been re-modified into that or taken out. So uh, since Kalpin had a, a Cowper had a theory, um, Andrew Smith ran that theory and did the work, extensive work on the manuscript and 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 determined that it would have required additional pages in order to put, that story in there. I have not met a textual critic yet that would even entertain the idea that it could have fit in that manuscript. Tommy Wasserman almost gave an eye roll. Dr. Wasserman almost gave an eye roll when he heard the argument that it was possible or that it wasn't feasible to believe that. Elijah Hickson was in shock when Elijah Hickson, uh, Dr. Hickson found out that somebody would insinuate that it did fit. Uh, I don't know of a single person who's examined uh, this manuscript or any textual critic today who would look at Codex A and say it was possible for it to fit because the work has been done on that manuscript to show it would require a large amount of extensive space to do that. So, But since there's a gap there, I'm not going to say I'm 100% sure because I'm not an absolutist. I work in the no. weight of the evidence, and I think the weight of the evidence is is very high. So what? Uh, what's your thoughts, Jonathan? What, what oh, manuscript okay. is it that we were talking about? Is it Codex A? Codex yeah. A, Alexandrinus. Which and and I've got it. I've got it pulled up here, and I just had a question real quick, and I want to turn it to you, Jonathan. Um, I, it says that, it, and what I'm looking at online, it says there were two leaves of Codex A which were lost, which you mentioned, but it it, it leaves from the word katabinon in in six fifty to the word legais in eight fifty two. So it right. seems like those would be the two leaves. So even if, so I, I'm wondering what the strength of the argument would be to say it, sh it, it probably wouldn't be in there or it should be in there based off of uh, that codex when those two leaves are, it, I mean, it, it jumps from 650, 650 to 852. So how would you respond to that? Is that to me or Jonathan? Well, it, it, it would be to you first, and then I want to get Jonathan's take on that as well. Uh, well, again, the, the research has been done to see if that amount of leaf could have fit those entire 12 verses on there. And and, and Andrew Smith made a tremendous case for it at Shepherd Seminary. There's no point in, in, in trying to entertain something that the work has been done on. I don't think we need Codex A to make the argument that I have of, of the— um, eclectic side of things. The reason I used A was because it's the earliest Byzantine witness. I think that the, the argument isn't changed one way or the other on that one single manuscript. Uh, the only reason I brought up A, I didn't bring up others. Like I didn't bring up Codex W. In fact, I, I have a facsimile of uh, Codex W here at the house. It's, it's not in Codex W, but there's other unseals that don't. But again, when we go back to the, the argument is where's the evidence? And there's weighted, weighed evidence and research done in the manuscript that shows it's, it's just not going to fit. Yeah. And, uh, and, and I think it's, it's, I think the textual critics who heard that in the interview were not only shocked, they, they, they had an eye roll for it. Jo uh, Jonathan, Jonathan, how would you, you respond to that? <laughs> yeah, you know, for me, uh, to make the case on uh, uh, Codex Alexandrius, um, you know, 
obviously Bergen did a extensive research and looked into this issue and you know obviously due to maybe technological advances that uh, were not available at his time you know was able to conclude that you can't make a case uh, for it or against it uh, my point on this particular matter is uh, let's say against the PA for whatever reason we, we know in the ancient world there were manuscripts that did not have it so um, whether we add one more to the bucket, two more, ten more, we know that manuscripts in the ancient world uh, did exist that did not have this passage. I think uh, the, the bigger question is, is, is providing the naturalistic explanation for how it not only entered into the text, the liturgies, but also into the art in both the Greek, Latin, and some of the Aramaic textual traditions. So, uh, spending uh, a large amount of the time to prove or uh, try to focus on Codex A, which we already know that there's manuscripts that didn't exist. Um, I, I don't see how it uh, helps his case uh, or, or takes away from Dr. Uh, Boyce's case uh, because there's a lot of unknowns. Even if it is, what does that establish? It doesn't tell us how it got into the actual churches, into its liturgies, into its art, and, you know, at least three different uh, textual traditions in the ancient world. So um, I, I think it was uh, an opportunity lost to actually focus on some of the bigger issues um, and uh, why fight for a minor detail uh, when you're missing the actual issue that we need to discuss. And I know Dr. Boyce brought it up, that the history and transmission, the origin of uh, this particular passage. Okay, so it seems like to me, and I just want to recap this so that I, I understand it, maybe those of you who are listening are in the same boat as me. The argument is that there's two leaves that are missing in Codex A. If you're looking at the, the size and the font and the usage throughout Codex A, it, based off of those two leaves, if you were to include the PA in those two leaves uh, and using the same size and font and spacing and all that, it, it would not have the PA included in it. So that would be an argument for Codex A saying that it's not, it's an argument um, against the inclusion. So... Uh, is there anything else that you guys wanted to... Yeah, I'll just say, like, a scribe had a tendency, and if you look at Codex A, it was a very um, well-done uh, manuscript, and they used this certain amount of lines on each page and consistent, so you can duplicate. You can duplicate with words by computerization. I'm, I'm telling you, I, I think Dean Bergon would have loved to have a computer that could remodify ancient manuscripts letter sizes, uh, line upon line, measuring it from top to bottom and try to duplicate from the Byzantine text what it would have looked like in Codex A. I think it would have been exciting. Uh, I think Bergen would have probably done a better job with it than what we're probably doing with it right now. But that's the beauty of technology. I mean, that's the beauty of, of the abilities that we have to look at these manuscripts. So I, I think, again, yeah. I'm not an absolutist. I don't work in absolute certainties without it. But the evidence, I, I would say, is is very close to the 100% mark. Uh, and no, we don't know what would have been marked there. You know, lectionary marks, asterisks. We, we don't know what would have been marked there. But we can make a strong assertion that it, it, it doesn't belong and it wouldn't have fit in, in the leaves that are missing. 
So one you, thing before we move on to the, the the next portion of the clip is is to point out that obviously there's the eclectic side of what we would use to cons for the considerations regarding the internal, external, and the historical side. It seems like Jonathan, you focus primarily on the historical side, and Stephen, you focus. That's kind of the sidebar for you, where the the external would be the, the biggest point for you and what you study with all the manuscript evidence side of it. But every, but everybody's looking at the internal to an extent. And obviously you guys are a lot more well-rounded, but one of the examples, and I'm sure we'll get to it, uh, would be the historical support, which I'm sure, Jonathan, you'll bring this up at some point with the patristic and versional support as well. But um, I, I'm not sure. Where do you guys want to go as far as uh, the, that point? Is there anything you want to hit on, or do we want to keep going with the clip there? I think we keep going. You get to keep going, Jonathan? Yeah, I think we spent already enough time. <laughs> All right, we'll keep rolling. now here on Codex A. Okay. All right, here we go. My challenge to the uh, whether or not Papias' reference to the sinful woman before Jesus in the Gospel of the Hebrews, uh, whether or not that is, is a reference, in fact, to the woman taken in adultery, there's no way really to prove that that was what Papias was making reference to, correct? Well, it seemed like everybody that followed Papias on that later would assume that it is exactly what he was talking about. And I haven't heard any other theory, and maybe you have. I'm not saying they're not out there. But well, who, else is, who, the else is, who else is, you said everybody who followed after him, who else has definitively shown that that is a reference to the pericope adulteri or to the woman taken in adultery and it doesn't explicitly say I'm that. I'm not talking about in history, I'm talking about scholars who study the quote from Eusebius because Eusebius was actually not even talking about the Gospel of John there, he was in a section on the Apostles and he added some additional things that he knew of these writings. To me, the story fits the description and the fact that it was quoted supposedly from the Gospel of the Hebrews, and then you see guys like Didymus. All right, you can pause it right there, Josh, because it's going to bring us to our Jonathan, why don't you jump in first since you love the empirical data and church fathers? <laughs> why, don't you start, why don't you start on the comment about his view of Papias' quote? Okay. You know, I, I think it's important uh, when we look at all the evidence is really to consider it uh, for its worth. Um, you know, from my standpoint, uh, I know Bergen pointed it out as well. Um, I, I think it's a strong illusion uh, when we look at what he's citing. Uh, it takes us what best explains what he's referring to. Um, I, I know Bergen understood that it's, uh, it's, it's a good, strong illusion to um, the woman in adultery. Uh, from my standpoint, uh, looking at the passage, what else other do I draw my attention to except the account of the adulteress initially looking at the passage? So I, I think it would be strong evidence or a strong illusion. I mean, we can't say for sure because he doesn't quote chapter and verse <laughs> that didn't exist yet. But I, I think it's a good indication that's what he's referring to. Um, you know, he is the Bishop of Heraclius. Uh, he was a known associate of the Apostles. Uh, my only question is, is he brings up uh, the gospel of Hebrews. Uh, and from my standpoint that, you know, and I'm just speculating here, why would Papias or the bishop of uh, Heropolis actually appeal and bring up the gospel of Hebrews, except that uh, the gospel of Hebrews is taking uh, scripture that is found in the gospels 
and putting it into the Gospel of Hebrews. We know that the uh, Gospel of Thomas uh, resembles a lot of our earlier uh, four Gospels. We know Marcion uh, took from our information as well. Um, There's stuff that uh, the Gnostic groups and communities were taken uh, from not only our canonical Gospels, but our other New Testament documents as well. So while I think it's a strong, uh, I think it's a good allusion to the woman in adultery, definitely Bergen saw that. Uh, There's others that do. I, I think it points us back to the churches and back to the canonical Gospels. Uh, my my biggest point that I make is if its origin did originally lie in the Gospel of the Hebrews, um, based on the documentation we have from the ancient churches with Tertullian, Irenaeus, heavily attacking the text of the Gnostics, what bishop of which apostolic church uh, would be okay with uh, implanting um, a Gnostic... Uh, uh, script, whether they thought it was original or something that Jesus said, who, who would have the cojones to really put it into uh, their churches, in their texts, in their liturgy? So that would be my uh, biggest uh, concern about it. What bishop would allow Gnostic documentation to be supplanted in the canonical Gospels, especially after it's been taxed? So I'll, I'll let you give your uh, thoughts, Dr. Boyce. Yeah, and I'll and, and we can play the uh, video in a second because it's going to bring me into my second part. <clears throat> I think, uh, like you said, we're back on the head being chopped off illustration here. No, I'm I'm not going to have my head chopped off for it. But we're we're looking at uh, different evidences. We're looking at similarities, and <clears throat> we know that the gospel, the Hebrews, from Eusebius's account, was a regularly used gospel by Jewish believers in Alexandria or in Egypt as a whole. They enjoyed that gospel, and it was not listed as a heretical gospel by Eusebius. Uh, it, it was a rejected one, but it certainly wasn't placed in the category of what he called impious and wicked, like the gospel of Thomas. Um, and he even mentioned the fact that the Jewish believers found a light in that gospel. And then we find later that there's a man named Didymus the Blind who is in Egypt, and he's also alluding to this story as well. And he chose to say the gospels, plural, which will come up in just a second on the video. He mentioned the gospels, plural, and he said uh, certain gospels. Uh, he was making a distinction with that term, certain. So it wouldn't be unrealistic to believe that he was familiar with this work of the gospel of the Hebrews and that this story that was conveyed uh, by Papias that Eusebius records would be connected to something that Didymus had. And it, it, it should be important to note that he didn't mention specifically John, uh, and he put gospels in the plural, and he used the word certain before it. So there could be a connect there as well that he was familiar with this document. I uh, again, Bergen illustrated kind of an idea of, yeah, this goes along with with the story. It seems to be there. There's others that did as well. And and uh, I, I think it's our earliest witness of the story in its earliest form. But if you want to hit yeah. play, we can kind of build on that because now Didymus the Blind is is going to come. Yeah, out. and maybe we'll get to this. And, and, and obviously it seems like um, what the implication would be if he, if he made references, which some people say that he does – he does uh, quote specifically John 
twice with Papias writings. But, but what I would ask is, it seems like the implication is the reference for uh, the Gospels in generals as reference to the Gospels in generals or the Gospel of the Hebrews is is that he's he's making a reference that that's where it was actually included originally. So, and and I would just ask you, Stephen, do you believe that it was originally in the Gospel of the Hebrews? I do uh, think that it was—I don't know if that was the original placement of it. Uh, I, I don't think we can say that at all, because unfortunately we lost the Gospel of the Hebrews outside of citations such as Eusebius right there. We, I really wish we could—and I was actually—I don't remember who I was talking to the other day. They they were talking about how great it would be if, if somebody just unburied a full copy of it like the Gospel of Thomas, because honestly I think we'd have better use of it than the Gospel of Thomas. But um, I, I, I continue to say that this source— of the story, I do believes go do I do believe goes back to apostolic tradition, uh, and that's why I I went back and stated, is it possible that there's a story that is true? And I want to be clear about this. I believe the story is true. Can a true story that happened in history about Jesus exist without being inspired? Uh, I don't think this story was made up out of thin air by some guy sitting on the top of a tower on the city wall one day and decided to make this up. I I think that we see different versions of this story, uh, as uh, Didymus brings up. The style of the story that he presents is not identical to the style of Papias, and it's definitely not as lengthy and detailed as Didascalia. So again, uh Where's the origin? That's what we're all arguing for. And uh, some will take the empirical data and say, well, it goes back to the empirical, uh, which is Jonathan's view. My manuscript lookings and examinations show it's not even in manuscripts that represent within a very close time frame. I don't think it originated in the Gospel of Hebrews, but I think the Gospel of Hebrews, if it contained it, would have gotten it from a similar source as these other documents like Didascalia in Syria, like Didymus the Blind's quote, uh, I certainly believe that they had access to the story, and I do think it's a real story. I don't deny its historicity. I, right. I deny whether or not John wrote it. Um, yeah, and I know we'll get to questions at the end for the audience, but it, it related to this specifically while we're here. Buck Daniel asks this. He says, Stephen, can you explain how this could uh, not have referred to, quote-unquote, certain gospel books? How would you respond to that? Is he talking about the gospel, the Hebrews? Maybe I'm I would assume so. Maybe I missed a comment back there, but I, I, I think that's what he was making a reference to. Uh, if he's talking about the gospel, the Hebrews, I don't know what the, the fact is, is I, I know that some would assume that uh, Didymus was talking about gospels being the collective four gospels. Right. Right. Uh, and again, maybe we all have our, our, you know, viewpoint of that, but I don't think that that resolves why he would say certain Gospels, because Didymus was not um, shy about mentioning Gospel names. Yeah, He wasn't shy about giving credit to Luke. He wasn't shy about getting, giving credit, uh, credit to Matthew. So why here? Did he say, did he have it in John's gospel? It's possible Didymus had it in a manuscript of John. Did he also have it on his other hand in the gospel of the Hebrews that they were reading as well? We don't know, um, but he certainly didn't limit it to one. And the fact that someone say collectively, I, I just don't think that works. I, I don't think he was, it, because it's not in the gospels collectively. It's in John's gospel. And anytime these church fathers cite a specific gospel, they were consistently mentioning the name of the writer with it. I, I don't know your view, uh, Jonathan. What, what's your thoughts? Yeah. 
Um, you, you know, for me, when we're looking at the, the history of the Church of Alexandria, I mean, obviously, uh, you know, Origen gives us a list of the documents uh, that were cataloged and received at the Church of Alexandria. Uh, obviously, Athanasius, you know, specifically does a big uh, discussion on limiting out uh, any apocryphal works and shows from the standpoint of the Church of Alexandria, these are the ones that are recognized. Um, you know, Didymus, who was blind and probably didn't see anything, uh, <laughs> you know, what use of Braille he had, um, <laughs> Obviously, you know, as the head of the catechetical uh, school at Alexandria, I, I think it would, you know, from my standpoint, as a teacher at Alexandria, the history of the documents, um, it, you know, Athanasius did a good job of really separating out uh, any apocryphal type of works um, for the Church of Alexandria. I, I think the natural... Uh, assumption would be he's referring to the Gospels themselves, the canonical Gospels. I, I'm trying to understand why he would appeal um, to a story that he said um, Jesus, the Lord, if it's uh, from a Gnostic Gospel, which wouldn't have any credibility. Uh, I, I think the bigger thing, and, and it's more circumstantial, is that uh, both Jerome and, uh, you know, Rufinius uh, met and learned uh, from, uh, uh, from Didymus the Blind, and we know where they put it. Um, and Jerome, the textual scholar he is, uh, provides no history that uh, he understood it from being from the gospel of, yeah. uh, of the Hebrew, and he understood it as a, a portion from John. So I, I would say on the Didymus quote, I would think as the uh, the teacher he was over that area for the catechumens, I think it would lean, I know Ehrman sort of thought it leaned towards uh, the Gospels, but once again, um, we both Dr. Boyce and I can't read his mind. Um, and because but, of that, uh, it's, it's hard to be sure um, apart from circumstantial evidence. Yeah. Well, here, here's what we are sure about. Uh, if we just concede to the fact that, and he, and, and, and uh, Jonathan's correct. Uh, the, a lot of those documents by Athanasius were expelled. Uh, in fact, that's probably why a lot of the tradition continued to expel those documents where the manuscripts of the Gnostic gospels were found in Nag Hammadi buried in jars. They were probably buried because they were illegal to have, and they were being expelled yeah. from the land. And, and that's why they've been preserved all this time, because somebody was burying them to preserve them. Um, and Athanasius was uh, very adamant about expelling those kinds of documents out of the land. The problem, I would say, with the Gospel of the Hebrews is, is it was not considered Gnostic uh, as the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Truth and so forth. But I will say this. Let's concede, let's concede and say he was talking about the Gospels as a whole. What we do know is that the reading of the story that he gives is not identical to the story in John's gospel. Uh, adultery, for example, is not uh, mentioned. Uh, we don't see him mention a woman caught in adultery. The whole story, the narrative that plays out with the Pharisees and Jesus's dialogue, the writing, those aspects are not in his citation of it. 
Um, we see a version of the story, but even if it was John's gospel, it was clearly in a different format and it's not entirely with the same details of the manuscript uh, or like in the TR or even the majority text of today. Okay. So I think we can go, I think we can go to minute five. Minute five uh, I think okay. is perhaps another spot. I think he gets into the proto. All right, here we go by Luke, and it was a part of the Elsinger article. You've gone even further and said that it was it was part of proto-Luke. You've got, you've got a lot about the fact that uh, it was included in uh, one tradition in Luke's gospel, and, and you say that's very, very significant, but all of that was a thousand years after uh, the gospel of John was written. And okay, can you pause that? Thousands of years Back, back to not to rehash the proto Luke our, uh, argument about the the full purpose of the uh, document. Uh, you know, we we don't know, and I certainly don't know, and I'm not claiming that Luke Luke did actually originate the story. I, I do think it goes back to the apostles. It's very possible it goes back to Luke. The terminology connecting to Diascalia, et cetera, et cetera. That is fully a theory that's been chased down and studied. Uh, I do not make a decision one way or the other on that. We're all trying to get back to the origin. That in the article was just an opportunity to examine another thought process. I never concluded and even said it should be rejected, even in textual criticism of belonging in Luke. But it does have an origin, and that's where we're at. Now, uh, I think it should be noted that the wording, uh, like being Lucan or Johannan, even Scrivener, who is the father of the TR, so to speak, of today's TR, his 1881 and so forth, Scrivener actually believed that this story was not in the original first draft of John. Uh, and, and others did as well. Alford and, and, and other great Anglicans like Jonathan over here. Uh, when they examined the... Because again, Burgon and Scrivener, they didn't find this as some done deal of study. They... These guys were the ones that were constructing and defending a certain text, Bergen specifically, the ones that were passed down through the church, and then Scrivener coming as well, doing the same and compiling what most people use today for the TR. Scrivener did not believe this belonged in the first edition. He believes that parts of John 5, the last chapter of John, Scrivener and Alford believe that this was added in a second edition to John. Now, I don't see any evidence of that. I think the churches would have certainly noted something that significant. But what that indicates to us, though, is that Scrivener recognized that the wording and the timing and the placement seemed not to be in an original flow of thought, and that John would have actually come back and included it in a second edition. And I know prolu uh, the, the prologue and the epilogue, people believe that John went back and added the first section of his first chapter and the last chapter and so forth. But Scrivener, uh, the, the TR proponent uh, text of today by most TR only advocates, uh, even believe there was something about this story that didn't fit that first edition, believing that John went back and added it in that placement. So it's not bizarre. It's not insane, even in those who defend it belonging, to see some uniqueness, difference, syntactical difference, odd placement, odd timing, it's not ridiculous for people to view that because even Scrivener struggled with it belonging in the first edition of John. And you being an Anglican, Jonathan, defend your Anglican Scrivener. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, I, I, I do defend, uh, uh, <laughs> um, I do defend uh, Scrivener in many ways. He was an Anglican. Uh, we both uh, accept the uh, apostolic polity. Um, both probably believed in the 39 Articles of Religion. Uh, I, obviously, I, they are a product of their times. And, uh, you know, the, a school of thought was being introduced. I know uh, uh, Greisbach kind of thought there was uh, something else that was added in at the end of Mark, uh, a second edition uh, from the ancient patristics. Uh, we have no indication regarding their editing process. Uh, all we know is that a uh, version was authorized to be read in the churches, and uh, from what we can tell, there was no documentation um, that talked about updates, or they, they linked up to the cloud with their text of the New Testament, got it updated in their database, and that's what it was. Um, re regarding uh, the question of Luke, and, and that's probably where I wouldn't agree with Scrivener on there, uh, but... Uh, just because we have no empirical data to um, support that statement, even if it did happen. Um, I, I think in regarding to, you know, why does this show up in Luke? Um, obviously, you know, earlier I made my, you know, discussion on, on the history of election cycle. I, I think one important point um, that, that would seem reasonable to me in there is, you know, once again, this passage was moved over uh, to October 8th. And we, we do know that uh, in, on October 7th, early in Luke verses 12 to 9, serve as the reading for October 7th. So if if I would have to, you know, the way they're setting up uh, their readings, as, as I showed before, you know, you have different churches setting up their uh, readings differently throughout the uh, Greek, Latin, and Aramaic uh, churches. So it, we do see a lot of differences in there. Um, and if you're thinking you're going to take out a portion of uh, scripture and add it to an existing uh, election cycle uh, on October 7th, does it make sense just because it's going to be on October 8th, are you going to just lump it in there because it's it's easier to do? You know, you already have October 7th, uh, which is going over Luke. Do we take this, uh, since we're moving it over to October 8th, uh, does it fit better here in the election cycle? But, you know, that would be my thought. Uh, Jonathan, addition, are, you have, uh, are you willing to have your head chopped off for that? No, no, uh, because uh, no, no. I didn't get to speak with the uh, uh, the lector or the scribe who was actually setting up uh, those, uh, th those readings for the church. I would have to pass. But, uh, you know, my, my other point, and it is speculation, I think the point on moving it to uh, the day of repentance uh, does kind of help satisfy the view that maybe she did eventually repent. Now, once again, that's just my conjecture. I think the purpose of bringing it to October 8th is to calm the nerves of the people in the conversation like she was just given a free pass. So I, I think that plays into the argument as well. Yeah, and, uh, and Nick Sayers brought up a, a good point about Bergen uh, as well, kind of on a side note, uh, that he formulated kind of the concept of the majority text. I think 
I think Bergen would be closer to a majority text advocate today uh, than uh, more of a TR because he was for revision. I mean, he wasn't against revision. He wasn't against studying these passages and so forth and looking at all the evidence, which, again, goes to prove um, – maybe we'll talk about this more later, but Dr. Riddle had mentioned that this issue was settled in the churches. Numerous times he said that in the debate. It was settled in the churches. It was settled in the Reformation. Well, Bergen didn't believe that. Uh, Scrivener didn't believe that, and they were after the Reformation. Uh, there, were, there was arguments being made uh, about this passage way past the time we see the tradition of the Byzantine text really taking off and making numerous copies of this. He also said something, and I don't know, uh, Jonathan, your view on this either. He said a thousand years later. Now, uh, you're a TR advocate, so I, I will be careful how I state this. It, it's it's hard to take a TR advocate serious where they're going to dismiss a concept on manuscripts that came a thousand years later when there are numerous readings in the TR that are not supported by any manuscript Within a thousand years of the original, there's numerous readings that came in later editions of manuscripts that are not in the first thousand years. And it's just like, I, I, I don't even know how to take that kind of criticism. Well, this is a thousand years later. Well, there's numerous readings in the TR that don't have Greek support. And hear me carefully so I'm not misquoted all over the Internet again. Greek support. Uh, that are pre-thousand years. So I, I just, I don't know, that was just kind of odd to me that a TR advocate would, would use that argument. I don't know your view on age and date. You, you know, and, and I'm probably going to speak more about this later regarding proviance or what were the witnesses by the churches, because if, if we're talking about the text received uh, by the churches, so, you know, John sent out his copies from Ephesus, uh, out to the independent Greek, Latin, and Aramaic churches, I'd be concerned specifically with what documentation that was received and what documentation was uh, transferred down through those channels, the churches themselves, that are witnesses. We know that other things uh, existed out there. Uh, the one point I'd, I'd make about the Reformation is, remember, this all begins because uh, Lorenzo Valor actually takes four copies of the Vulgate and he takes uh, four Greek texts. We know uh, Constantinople was raided by the Turks. Turks were coming over into Europe uh, to flee uh, from the Turks. So obviously we had access uh, from texts coming over uh, from the Greek Orthodox churches. And because of Lorenzo Valla's analysis, uh, obviously Erasmus was very influenced by the work of Lorenzo Valla, is they noticed that there were discrepancies between the textual tradition that had come down in the West, uh, obviously represented by the Latin Vulgate, and uh, the texts of uh, the Greek Orthodox churches. So this is why we see Cardinal Jimenez be beginning his, you know, thorough project on uh, the polygon. And we also see why Erasmus is taking to this study as well. So it's because of these differences uh, that they felt was important enough to spend resources, get approval from the Church of Rome, uh, to start researching and investigating manuscripts uh, that the editions of the TR was created 
with the purpose of resolving the differences between the Greek, Latin, and Aramaic uh, ecclesiastical texts. So that was the scope of what they were trying to do, which brought about the TR. And obviously, you know, the scholars of Europe, uh, which I felt had a better understanding of how the ancient churches were set up, how they were able to transmit their writings, you know, that is why I'm able to say, you know, I can accept their decisions because I think these were the greatest scholars in Europe. They understood the differences um, uh, between these manuscripts. They understand how the ancient world operated. And this was the textual decision that they came to trying to resolve these problems. Well, and yeah, and, I, and I've told you this before, probably in past conversations, if I was a TR uh, advocate of any sort, um, and you know, this might be insane to some people, I would the, the Complutensian Polyglot to me was a better edition than Erasmus's edition. Uh, so I, I would probably take that one more serious because of some of the things that were done in Erasmus's editions due to rushing, uh, limited uh, hands-on manuscripts, etc. So to me, the TR, but but you would have to admit, Jonathan, that there are readings that have no Greek support at all in the TR, just Latin or very, very little Greek that came much later after a thousand. So that's really a bad argument for if you, a TR only advocate, would say you can't use that argument, so to speak, uh, because that's a thousand years later. Well, that's in that kind of odd coming from a TR person. Well, Remember, I think there's there's a difference between Dr. Riddle and I, and obviously it's it's not meant out of uh, disrespect. Um, Edward Hills, in his uh, King James controvert, or in his uh, work defending the King James, the Byzantine text, um, he actually notices that there is a difference in the High Anglican view of the Textus Receptus. He he points out that you know Bergen, uh, Scrivener. Edward Miller uh, and other high church Anglicans um, understood uh, it differently than uh, Edward Hills. And, and, and he plainly states that, you know, like Bergen and the, and the church, they kind of only recognized three ecclesiastical bodies because they were the successors of the apostles. Uh, we can trace back. Um, and that's why... Um, uh, Bergen placed so much emphasis on the uh, quotations and writings of the bishops of the apostolic churches. Uh, I think his point, uh, I understand where he's coming from, and I think this is where Dr. Uh, Riddle would probably appeal more to on uh, Edward Hills. But, you know, for me, we have to understand how these ch churches were set up and organized. And there was an actual mechanism set up by the apostles to ensure that the text that was handed on to their successors uh, was transferred and secured uh, down through their channel, the churches, up into posterity. So uh, what we're arguing for or appealing to is actual mechanism to secure the transfer and control of the text which then becomes the witnesses uh, to establish these readings as both apostolic and Catholic in the sense that it's universal. It can trace back to the apostles. So I've but, got so, I've got two yeah. points um, that I wanted to I, I wanted to jump in on. One one is the first point that was brought up there with um, 
with see i'm a tr advocate and in, in saying that there's no greek uh manuscript support for many tr readings it is something that obviously a tr person would have to take into consideration and i'd take into consideration myself it, it is and, and ask for examples like what would the what would some of those examples be but and, and we could examine those but that's the same for the critical text and i think you would you would say the same thing there's there are readings in the critical text that don't have any greek support uh in any manuscript so it would, it yeah. would go both sides there but one thing that i would ask is when we're talking about the proto luke in origination is is in something that i i was just thinking as i was listening to you you guys mm-hmm. talk about this is is um it it seems a little peculiar to me to argue a proto luke in origination if if you really believe that it was original to the gospel of hebrews i i'm not sure what the connection would be there but i I, that's just something i was thinking about as you guys are talking and i'd like to yeah what's your take on that yeah i don't think it was original to the gospel of hebrews necessarily i think if the gospel of hebrews truly contained the story it came from a same similar source that also produced it in the syrian uh reading of the dascalia um, I, I'm not saying that it, that's the first gospel that had it. Papias seemed to allude to that one having a story likened unto the one we see in John's gospel, which is probably an early citation of it, but he references it to the gospel of Hebrews, which actually tells us that the gospel of Hebrews is probably first century, late first century. Uh, so it would have been an earlier book because uh, Papias was at the end of the first century, end of the second century. But I don't think it originated from Hebrew. I think that the, the gospel of the Hebrews received that story from a source that would also be the same source that put it into Dascalia, which claims to be the 12 apostles. So Uh, you would agree with uh, Tommy Wasserman that it was probably, it it was an interpolation from a Greek manuscript into the Gospel of John in that case. Yeah, I I actually, I agree with Dr. Wasserman very, very much on that. In fact, he and I have talked about it uh, in video chats and so forth. Um, but yes, yeah. And to answer your other question about, uh, are there readings? And again, we have to remember there's different editions of the Texas Receptus. I mean, there's numerous editions, uh, that read differently than others from Beza to Stephanus to even the Complutensian polyglot. Uh, there are definitely readings. Uh, Erasmus obviously borrowed a reading about the book of life in Revelation 22, rather than the tree of life. There's no Greek manuscript that survives today that has uh, the reading Book of Life, because I personally believe, and I know that uh, friends of mine uh, would argue against me and say, no, he wasn't borrowing from the Latin there. But there is no Greek manuscript that has Book of Life. There are Latin manuscripts, but but there's no Greek manuscripts that have Tree of Life. But in the critical text, uh, yes, there's different editions. And I have actually, and I know Elijah Hickson has done the same thing. Like in 2 Peter chapter 3, the Nestle and Allen 28th edition, we see the word not inserted right. there. And there's a lot of dispute amongst the critical text people right now, like because the Nestle and yeah, Allen right. changed it, uh, but the uh, Tyndale text did not. Uh, and I actually lean with Elijah. I, I, don't, I don't think that... 28th edition of the Nestle and Allen is right. I, I don't agree with it. And so we do see things like, like you're saying, even the critical text, because that's coming from a Coptic, an old Coptic tradition is where they're inserting that in second Peter three. Um, and, and they're, and it's kind of mysterious as to why they did it, but at least in that text, 
there are notes in the bottom of the manuscripts that do not have the word there. Yeah. Um, whereas the TR really doesn't provide a database of manuscript differences, but there are examples. Yes. See, and, and ultimately, I hope that answered your question. That it, it does, and that's one of those questions where it's like, man, you know what? It's 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 good to hear you say, like, man, I disagree with that, and there's speculation as to why it was why it was put in there, why it's in there. And that would that's where I'm like, man, I want to get your take on that. But I know we've got to move on. We've got other yeah. stuff to get to. So anyways, minute 16 would be a good spot there, because I think I need to make a clarification for the whole world uh, to, uh, <laughs> to to hear. All right. Minute 16. Let me get there. All right. Here we go. Manuscript witness to the Pricope adulteri. OK, uh, so 14 out of 300. You didn't count them. Uh, IGNTP, it's zero five zero seven zero nine zero. All right, go ahead and pause that. Sorry, I guess I gave you a, a, a. We heard the second half of that in in this. It was me recalling a statement that Doctor Riddle made about uh, many ancient uncials, uh, and this is where all the conspiracy theories bloomed from there. Um, <clears throat> my main point in that, and and actually. I had talked to numerous people after the debate about better clarification or should have stated this, should have stated that more clearly. Uh, before I went into the debate, I counted the unseals that did have it. I did not go back and count the ones that did not. 16 uh, do not uh, contain it that we can tell, possibly 17. And again, how you, how you view Alexandrinus would dictate that number as well. Um, Obviously, I know that all 300 unseals do not contain uh, the Gospel of John in that section. And there's more than 300. I'm, I'm giving a roundabout number. Obviously, I recognize the fact that they do not contain all of that. Uh, the clarification statement was is that he made a, a general statement. In fact, I talked uh, to Dr. Riddle slightly afterward, and we discussed a couple of things. But uh, the statement was many of the unseals contained it well there's over 300 uh unseals and and 14 out of that mass even though they don't cover john he made a general statement and generally speaking that's not accurate just as it's not accurate for me to say many of the unseals lack it there's more that lack than more that have but it's just as wrong for me to say many lack it my main argument in the article as well as in the debate was not the number of unseals but the date of the unseals uh, and the date of the unseals uh, to me was the bigger argument both made in the article and so forth. But I did talk to a couple of my friends and, you know, I'm, I'm not opposed to um, positive criticism. Uh, Jonathan and I have actually discussed this as well. Other TR advocate friends of mine have discussed it and critical text. And actually, I'm, I'm going to modify it so it doesn't sound misleading. Uh, I'm willing to admit I probably should have worded that different. I understood what I meant by it, and, and it probably didn't come out the best way. And it probably needs to be updated a little bit more um, specific, not general, even in my article. I'm totally fine with that. I'm not opposed to that. Uh, but th the point of the matter was is, is we got so distracted on, on this statement that we missed the fact that Dr. Riddle said many unseals contained it, and he made a general statement amongst the unseals. He didn't say many of the unseals that covered John contain it. And, and that might be because he needed to clarify his statement as much as I needed to clarify my statement. I'm willing to give him the massive benefit of the doubt. Uh, Jonathan, do you, do you have any thoughts? No, not really. I, I think uh, it's, I think the point has already been belagered enough. 
know, I, you know, I, I think it's important to know when you're having these discussions, uh, and I've been them uh, as well in other discussions I've I've had, is that uh, you know, you know, you're trying to recall, you're trying to go over information, uh, and you know, I, I don't think there was any ill intention. Uh, when Dr. Boyce was speaking on that or tried to mislead or uh, represent it in his favor. Um, I think he already uh, clarified the statement probably more than he had to. Uh, so I, I think from that regard, um, 14, you know, for me, it, it still comes down to proviance. Um, they can have 300 unknown documents. Uh, I, I think it, it, it doesn't really make a case, except we know that there was documents and have it. But, uh, yeah, I, I would just leave it at that. I don't think there was anything Dr. Boyce was doing to mislead or misrepresent the evidence in his favor. Um, I, I think what's the call? He made the clarification already. So I, I don't think there's anything I can add of value uh, to that. Yeah. So I would just say, man, I think that's pretty honorable to be able to, to take a step back and go, you know what, it, I see where people are saying this is what it looks like is being said. And obviously you've got the quotations from the article, you've got the quotations from the debate, and that's probably this number, this number that people are drawing out on um, from those, those two different points of, uh, of, of what you've written and what you said in the debate. Yeah, is, and, it, and, I, I think and that's... I was speaking I was speaking in general terms, like yeah. if there was an opportunity for it to appear in all the manuscripts, if there was a, a an amount to appear in the unsealed totality is over 300. Yeah. No way in shape or form do even a tenth of those actually cover that section yeah. of John. None of them earlier than Codex D have it, which is fifth century. The earliest before that, we're talking P66 of the papyri, P75, uh, Aleph and B, and, and as I mentioned, Alexandrinus or W. Uh, when we look at those, I, I was more so arguing both concepts. The earliest, uh, one of the most uh, relations of the West being from Sinaiticus, because the first eight chapters of John and Sinaiticus are Western predominantly. Uh, Alexandrinus is, is Byzantine in the Gospels. Um, P66, P75 are obviously the earliest uh, witnesses of anything. Because they're, they're within probably about 100 years of the original writing of John. And then you have Vaticanus, which I think is a, one of the most important manuscripts that we have to date. And, and most of my argumentation was coming from that, recognizing, yes, uh, but, but as an opportunity of how many could have, yeah, we've got over 300, but the problem is not all of those covered. John, which Dr. Riddle recognizes, and I recognize, uh, and, and don't need yeah. to like belligerent that point, but the point of the matter is, is there's just as many opportunity to lack it as there is to have it. Neither one of them are significant to the argument. That's why right. I appeal to the date, both in my article and in the debate. Yep. If you, um, I think minute 17, or the, the 17th minute there. Yep. Um, there might have been a talking point. I know Jonathan's going to probably jump in on this one as well. Minute 117 to, or an hour 17 to hour 18. Okay. Yeah, let me play that. That emerged uh, in Christianity that affirmed this passage as authentic and inspired and as part of the proper text of the Gospel of John. Okay. So with that, in these manuscripts, are you saying that all of them read the same way? And I'm not talking about minor variances. Are you saying that they're consistent with each other? 
are are is what consistent with each other. Our manuscripts tell the story, but the same details in the same way. Are they consistent with one another? It depends on how you define consistency. I mean, given that you're you're in the pre-printing era and all these things are handwritten and hand copied, there it is. And also, given the fact that you know, you talked about uh, Marie Robinson. Uh, working with von Soden uh, material and, and tracing the differences, some of the textual differences in the transmission of the Pericope Adulteri. Given the challenges to the Pericope Adulteri, I don't think it would be surprising that there would be uh, a number of variations. I mean, there are variations in passages that, that aren't even as disputed. So as long as there is a tradition of handwritten copies. All right, pause it right there. There was the statement where I, I don't know if anybody else caught this in the debate. He he actually um, he, he never answered the question about which one's the right one, and that's the issue that we're, we're we're running into in this debate is which ones are consistent with each other that are the preserved ones that have been passed down. And Dr. Robinson has laid out the statistical charts of Mu 5, Mu 6, Mu 7, in addition to the seven that von Soden produced, recognizing that you can't build this story without, and, and Dr. Robinson condensed it to three, and even if you pull up a majority text, you'll see he inserted the Mu 5, Mu 6, Mu 7 in the sections of which that data was provided for which streamed reading. And I, I never felt like I got an answer from which one is the consistent one that was preserved all the way through, and he says there's variations in other passages that are not uh, that that are also disputed. Well, the the problem is is this is one of the biggest disputed. We're not we're not talking about a small variance here. We're talking about twelve <laughs> verses. Uh, this is this is one of the variants of variances, along with the long ending of Mark. I mean, these are usually the first two that come up in textual criticisms. The first two you study in textual criticism courses. Uh, so where we have consistency. There was never an answer. Where do I go to find the correct version of the story? Because we really can't make the story the way it is without piecing together even Byzantine streamed readings. Now, Jonathan, you're in, you have a different view because yours isn't so much on that manuscript evidence, although you include it. Yours is empirical. So what is your view with your position? Though, Because you do recognize there's many different streamed readings, some starting in different places, some ending earlier, different details. How do you resolve that with your position? Yeah, so I, you know, I, I think it's important to note uh, that there there is variation. I don't know, 70, 80. I, I, I for uh, the question is, can uh, can the account be recognized? And and that is true. Um, it, it can be recognized. Uh, I think I think what the variation does establish, uh, let's say even in uh, uh, the text of the Greek Orthodox churches is if they're coming from three different streams, um, there's an eventual source back to that screen uh, that is independent of each other. So from my standpoint, the fact that there are uh, differences, there is variation, there is a lot of variation. The fact is there is a recognizable account uh, that did exist that those streams are drawing off of which they would have got from their text. And the, the fact that uh, there's, um, you can correct me if I'm right, three different streams in the text of the Greek Orthodox Church, 
shows that they, they weren't copying from each other. So I, I think from my standpoint, uh, there wasn't collusion on this passage because if, if, if there was very uh, minimal variation, uh, apart from the scribal errors or misspellings, uh, you would say that there was collusion on the part to include this story. But the fact that you have three different streams with uh, differences in them uh, go back to a common source that's coming from the church. So uh, did all those different streams make up this account uh, collectively? Because if, if they did, they would have a consistent stream. The fact that the variation exists in the, in the Byzantium alone, not to mention what we find in the Latin, shows that there was no collusion on the part of one editor or two editors, but you have three different streams that leads back to an identifiable account for this uh, narrative. So I'd like to kind of piggyback off of that and just ask you a question, Stephen, is, is when we're talking about the location of it and we're talking about the earliest records of, of where it would have been located and how we would know that it could have been located in John and what's the best evidence to show that the earliest point we would see it is where that's where it would be. So the, 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 what I would look at is obviously not evidence that for the inclusion, but the recognition that it was there. And that would be for the four earliest witnesses being P66, which shows a dot marking the omission where it would have been located. And then P75 showing the dot and space mark at the location where it would have been, where it would have been located. But then Sinaiticus shows a space and dot marking the omission, showing it was recognized and known, but omitted as probably a reference that it there would re reject it as a variant. But then you see also... Um, on 1361 in Codex Vaticanus, that there's there's the double dot um, markings over in the column, in column three, and then um, there's another column there as well, showing that they recognized uh, that it would have been there, but they were rejected. So what would you say about that as being a witness for the location through well, permission? I don't, I don't think P66 is using that. I don't think that mark is is a, a notification of knowledge of a text. I think that's just a part of the um, <clears throat> the marking of the scribe there leaving a, a punctuated section. I don't, I don't think that it's necessarily a saying, oh, well, there may have been something here, but we, we skipped over it. And that would be true in, in the other some of these other manuscripts as well. Um, my issue is not with the fact that it, it, if it's going to be placed in the manuscript tradition, it shouldn't be in John. I, I actually think that there's more evidence for it to be in John than in Luke. Again, the Lucan thing is chasing down a theory about why certain manuscripts put it there, uh, whose mother manuscripts went back to the 7th century. Also, a high emphasis on didascalia. In John's gospel, what we see in some of these streams, like verse 6, is different. Uh, Jesus writing on the grounds not included, or some contain what Jesus, you know, was writing. Uh, some start in verse three. Uh, there's different readings there. And, and my, my statement is, and, and, you know, there's inconsistencies between the papyri and Aleph and, 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 uh, and B and some in Alexandrinus and places. Of course, there's differences even in the Alexandrian field. The problem is, is we, we in the critical text position don't hold this view of perfection or Dr. Riddle's view kept pure through all ages. Well, if it was kept pure from all ages, then that should be accounted for. 
but what we see is is a lot of coming together of different streamed readings, this piece, this piece, this piece, this piece, and differences, differences, differences. Which one was the pure one kept through all ages? That's that's not an argument I would ever make because I don't believe in that system. Uh, so I would reject a lot of these streamed readings. My only thing to Dr. Riddle was because of his confessional belief. Tell me which one should I go to to find the kept pure one in all ages? Is it move five, move six, move seven, the combination of all three, the one that ended up in the TR, the way Codex D had it worded? I don't believe every single word is as important as somebody with a confessional position. Yeah. So my question was geared towards where do I go to find that one? Or did it just work itself out in the Reformation and God, which he pretty much answered at the end, and I'll, I'll give him credit for that, uh, that it was resolved. It was resolved at the very end in the Reformation. And, and to me, that just, so what's the point of the data? It really doesn't matter about textual variances. It really doesn't matter about which manuscript had it, which did not. And again, we, we look at the church fathers and we say, well, this was settled, you know, at certain points, I know Dr. Riddle had mentioned that a couple of times. It was settled the Reformation. He said it was settled uh, pretty early on in the churches. But we see even guys like Euthymius who examined uh, in, in Byzantium, in, in Constantinople in the 12th century. He was looking at the best of the manuscripts in, in the Byzantine family, and he said that they lacked them in most of the best manuscripts. That's in the 12th century. And most of the manuscripts that contain it are Byzantine. Well, why why is that the case? I and mean, is he a full fledged liar? I mean, uh, or did he just have a decent opinion? Uh, you know, so I don't see where it was ever really settled. I, I don't see where we can definitively run away with it, even in the Reformation. I don't think the reformers saw it that way either. And then, like I said, Burgon shows on the scene. Scrivener shows up on the scene afterward. They're looking at the data, and they're still interested in investigating and not saying, "Well, it was just settled. We don't need to investigate." They were still in investigation mode. So Jonathan, what do you think about that, about the empirical church settling this thing at some point? What, what do you think about the settlement of the text? Yeah, I, you know, I, I think when uh, we relate to this uh, uh, to this scripture alone, I, I know Bergen uh, kind of reserved this section as last, uh, as one of the most difficult problems at all. I, I know he understood it as a difficult problem. We know this passage of scripture was attacked or uh, kind of spoken against in the ancient world. So I think when we look to uh, the information, uh, we see, you know, from Augustine time, from Ambrose to Nikon, uh, even in the 12th century with, uh, I can't pronounce his name, so I'm not going to crucify it. But uh, obviously, you know, this it's important to understand the history of this passage that it was attacked in the ancient world. Uh, and, you know, going from Augustine's time in North Africa, where there was problems, uh, obviously in Ambrose's congregations in Milan, uh, and even in Nikon's ta time with the Armenians, um, there is throughout history a pattern where this passage was attacked. And for that to go away, um, obviously, you know, this is an issue. It's, it's something that I think is important. Uh, obviously, you know, early on, there's issues. As far as it being settled, you know, uh, once again, the reformers uh, noticed that there was a difficulty or differences between the Greek, Latin, and Aramaic uh, ecclesiastical texts. 
and they sent some of their best scholars to work on resolving those differences. Now, in the particular case of the PA, the decision that they came to within their uh, textual editions uh, obviously unanimously supports uh, their conclusion or how they felt the evidence leaned. Obviously, as uh, discussions came up uh, in, the, in the Church of England with Hort, you know, this discussion was revisited. Uh, so as a matter of it being uh, settled, obviously it depends on which group you're looking at, but it, it is it, it is an issue that uh, does require our investigation. And obviously if new evidence comes in that changes that, uh, obviously it's important to look at that. So what do you think about Euthymius? Uh, and, and I know you're familiar with this quote about this Euthymius was 12th century in Constantinople talking about the better of the manuscripts not having it. Should we just disregard that or just say, hey, this was still a dispute even in Constantinople? Well, um, you know, the thing about, uh, uh, how do you pronounce his name? Uh, you know, he, he was a monk uh, in Constantinople. And, and I think it's important to look at his witness or his statement on there. Um, you know, it, it's kind of interesting because, you know, he points out uh, certain key uh, factors in that statement. Um, and, you know, how do we resolve it? Now, I, I think I do run into a little problem because I have a statement from Eusimius who says it's not found in uh, the most manuscripts. Uh, but we do know, I mean, even in the time of Theophlat, uh, also with uh, Eusebius, around this time, uh, this is a majority reading in the uh, Syrian Byzantium text form. So the manuscripts of those periods do represent this as a majority reading in there. So, um, so the question I have, or the point I have to make is, do I accept someone of the Middle Ages who is making a statement uh, that seems contradictory to the extant uh, manuscript evidence uh, for the Syrian Byzantium text form that actually has this as a majority reading. Uh, obviously, I'm not trying to assume that there's any ill intention on the part of Eusimius' statement, but I think it's important to investigate what he said because I think he also points out that, uh, you know, it's not mentioned by Chrysostom or Cyril of Alexandria. Uh, so I, I don't think from reading the statement that there's any ill will. I do have to factor in that throughout history, there has been a noticeable pattern in North Africa, in Milan, uh, obviously by the Greek Nikon, that there was uh, animosity towards this passage. So obviously well, I'm I not going to... My question to you, Jonathan, isn't so much about whether or not that settles the issue of you know, he's right, you know, Jerome's wrong or, or uh, Athena, whoever, you know, any church father you want to quote before that, like you just mentioned. The question is, is was it settled? It, it doesn't seem from a comment like that, whether he was wrong or just looking at a limited resource, it would, it would still indicate that this text of dispute was not a settled issue somewhere in church history, even in Byzantium. I guess that's my main point. Yeah, well, I, I think the 
the scholars of Europe came to a resolution or a decision on this matter. Uh, and obviously in the next uh, couple hundred years, there was further dispute. Uh, as far as it ever being settled, um, <laughs> it depends on who you ask. Uh, I, I think the scholars of the Reformation made a decision on there that they came to unanimously on this particular, uh, whether it was settled in their mind, they were able to reach a decision uh, on well, let me ask you this, uh, Jonathan. One of the presentations, and I actually got accused of throwing a um, a a uh, I don't want to use a wrong word here because I've been in trouble all week. But uh, <laughs> I threw a bad move into the conclusion that I did by referring to it not belonging contextually in John, when actually. Uh, if we get, if we were to go back to the beginning of the discussion in my introduction, I mentioned it and mentioned it with the statement of hoping that we'd be able to discuss it in the cross-examination, but Dr. Riddle chose to go after syntactical conclusions that I even myself would not make one way or the other. But I made the comment that there's a interruption in the text with the story of the woman caught in adultery because on the last day of the feast in verse 37, which was the great day, the priests would go down to Salome and in their gold basins, bring the water to the altar uh, where Jesus just happened to be sitting on that day. He refused to participate in the tent making on the Feast of Booths uh, with everybody else. Rather, he demonstrated that he wasn't going to sit in just a tent uh, representing the presence of God, dwelling of God. He physically sat in the temple. And on that last day when the when the priests brought this water from Salome into the temple, they were singing the Hallels. The people were chanting and singing in the Jewish tradition, and they would circle around the altar seven times with this water, pouring it out, representing this salvation that God gave them when he gave them water in the wilderness, going back to their roots in Egypt. And uh, and then they would say, shout, Hosanna, save us, uh, the, the priests would. And so Jesus, on that last day, used their practice and their tradition to say, uh, you know, who, whoever is thirsty, let him come to me and drink, and out of him will come rivers of living water. He was saying, you know, this tradition that you've been doing all this time, I am fulfilling. And then there was a second tradition in the feast, and that was the feast of, uh, of holding up lights. They would lanterns at night representing God's protection and direction when they left Egypt with the fire. And and uh, Jesus comes out, and, and there, there's this dispute at the end of the chapter, like no, no prophet comes from Galilee. Uh, but actually, if we go to Isaiah chapter 9, we find that from Galilee, a light was seen out of darkness. And, and then Jesus comes in in verse 12 and says, I am the light of the world. Uh, and, and he claims to be that light that was brought into the darkness of the world, pointing to their lantern saying, I'm the light, I'm the water. He's using object lessons. And then when we get into chapter nine, we see him telling a blind man who can't see, who needs light uh, to wash himself in which pool, the pool of Siloam that the water came from that was poured on the altar to give a real life miracle demonstration of this healing. But the problem is if we put the Pericope adultery into this passage, what we find is Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives and everybody goes to their house. And then the next day, they're bringing up this discussion with Jesus, with this woman. And then he's saying, I'm the light of the world. But it seems contextually what that would have done actually is push the second aspect of the fulfillment of their feast of the lights, 
which was on the last day of the feast as the water basin, you would have actually pushed the ceremony a day late in fulfillment because another day would have gone by. Whereas if the story is not here, both aspects of this story are being fulfilled, the water and the light on the last day as they were doing in the tradition of the Jews and this miracle uh, of the of the man with the blindness. What are your thoughts about that? Because I, I really wish we could have spent some time on that. I mentioned it in my introduction, but sadly we weren't able to discuss it. Yeah, so um, first, you know, as far as your closing, I, I know you did reference it in your opening, I believe. Uh, and then tactically at the end, obviously, you know, it's a point to facilitate more additional discussion. Uh, actually, as a tactical move, I, I don't personally see anything wrong with that. I know in uh, my concluding remarks, uh, even in my uh, debate with uh, Dr. Richard Price before our question and answer, I did throw in some additional information that I wanted to segue into a further discussion that we hadn't already covered in our uh, opening statements and just some of the cross-examination. Um, now, as far as uh, this passage uh, sitting between, you know, from, from my standpoint, it is an interruption. So th there's a couple of things to be made about that. Uh, obviously, you know. Did the, you the say it was or it wasn't, Jonathan? Did you no, say it was? I said it, it, it is an interruption. Okay. Um, so uh, obviously there is an interruption here. And so when I'm thinking about it, uh, you have this big, uh, you have all this going on and there's an interruption uh, supplanted in the passage. So from my standpoint, um, you know, John, who would have been a witness to that, uh, my, which side would it being original because who would just supplement an interruption in that um, linguistically? It, it doesn't make sense except if during what was going on, you know, uh, putting pressure on Jesus, they wanted to bring this circumstance uh, to him uh, to kind of put him in a difficult position. How are you going to handle this? Because the law in the Old Testament uh, has us deal uh, with adulteries, with stoning. Uh, so from my standpoint, I, I think the interruption would weigh in the favor because what scribe or editor would make such an interruption to that passage of the flow unless John was there and this interruption occurred and they came out of nowhere to uh, surprise us uh, to kind of come off guard to deal with the uh, situation that is uh, dressed many times in the Old Testament, yeah. dealing with the with the law. Yeah, Let me. Well, and, and I, I'd like to take right? a stab at that if I could, Stephen. Um, so when we're in, in I'm, I know that I'm sitting back and listening a lot to it to this, uh, and and I'm not arguing that it's that it is an interruption or that it that it wouldn't be an interruption. Obviously, both Jonathan and I would be arguing for the authenticity of it, but. If you look at um, Culpepper's work on the internal evidence, the internal analysis of uh, the PA in relation to the rest of John, look at what he does in comparing John 5 to John 7, 15 through 24. And the quotations that he uses in, in, in citing um, the similarities and the relation to of these two stories back to from chapter five to chapter seven, and then look again at what he does in chapter six 
through John 8, 1 through 11, and in 6, 14, and I won't go through the whole thing, but you guys can look this up online. It's it's yeah. Culpepper's work on the internal. Well, and 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 I want to be clear about something, uh, Josh. I, I don't I don't believe that everything about the story lacks Johannan view. The the point that I was making earlier was that there's also views that aren't in here that seem to line again back with the Lucan thing. I'm not saying that there's no evidence of John at all in the story. Now, uh, to to pin it down to the two things. All right, so. He's talking to the Pharisees. The Pharisees are debating amongst themselves. And, you know, there's a conversation about check, check the scripture. Hey, see, see if a prophet comes yeah. from Galilee. And it's like Jesus <laughs> interrupts this debate about a prophet coming from Galilee and just says, I'm the light of the world. <laughs> I, I'm the light of the world. And so if we go back to Isaiah's prophecy about Jesus is answering them from Isaiah 9, which they would have instantly been recognized from, from this place of Galilee. Then it says, light was seen out of darkness. So for Jesus to actually say that statement next would have probably brought them to an Old Testament passage they were very, very familiar with about the Messiah coming, and Galilee is a part of the equation. Now, that brings us to the second point. Do interruptions happen in the Scripture? All the time. Right. Uh, interruptions happen all the time. The question is, this interruption would not just be an interruption that even Scrivener uh, recognized and said, you know, this is probably a part of the second edition of John. Again, I don't think Jonathan or I agree with Scrivener on that, but he recognized this does seem like an interruption enough where he would say that it was actually placed in the second edition, not a first edition. But at the same time, uh Though interruptions happen in Scripture, this interruption would have placed his fulfillment of their feast practices that he was trying to point. The Feast of Tabernacles is all about me. All the practices of the water was always about, I'm your salvation. You're chanting Hosanna, and I'm saying to you, if you believe in me, you'll have water coming out of you like a river. Rivers of living water springing out of you. Uh they're holding up the lanterns for their practice and the feast of the light. He's saying, I'm the light. All of these things you're practicing that go back to the Egyptian symbolism of deliverance that took you out of Egypt, I'm that salvation. So if we put the story there, it's not just an interruption. It's an interruption that actually puts the second perspective of the festivity of fulfillment of the lights a day after the feast is over. Because if we go to chapter 7, verse 36... It's on the last day of the feast that they did this water tradition and the light tradition. And if the story of the woman caught adultery is there, it actually pushes us out of the feast, which is seven days long, into an eighth day. Not that it can't happen, but it's like, well, that kind of just deflated Jesus's ultimate point of what he was pointing to in Isaiah's prophecy of being the water, which is Isaiah, and being the light which is in Isaiah as well, pointing to him being the ultimate fulfillment of those things. I don't have a problem with interruptions in Scripture, but this one would have actually delayed his second yeah. fulfillment of their practice. So what do you think, where would you place, and, and just real quick, where would you place Jesus entering the conversation with the Pharisees to kind of interrupt their conversation, to to bring the conversation between the Pharisees and you? Where do you place that if the PA is not in there? Well, they're, they're all in the same location. I mean, they were just having a discussion with each other. He's watching the priests do their duties. The Pharisees are discussing conversations about him. Nicodemus, 
And and then he just leaves the temple in chapter nine and he runs into the blind man who he spits on the ground, makes uh, clay, puts it on his eyes, tells him to go to the pool of Siloam. Again, the uh, where the water was. So it's obviously they were all in the same vicinity. And it's it's like they're having this conversation and debate about him. And listen, they didn't have a problem talking about him or to him or negatively towards him. They were already mad at him. They were seeking to arrest him already. That's why he, he they were concerned about him going to this feast to begin with. His time was not yet come. It wasn't his hour. So they were already ticked off at him, but he didn't mind engaging them. And by the end of the chapter, he's saying, hey, before Abraham was, I am. The, the dialogue never stops in the text. If, if we read it the way it is, the conversations are happening around him and to him and back to him and around him, all to the point where he finally leaves the temple, heals the blind man in the pool with the pool of Siloam. Yeah. Um, okay, so we're at almost two hours. We've got two more clips that we wanted to get through, but I want to see where you guys are at and where where you want to go with this. Um, I, we're at the very hour mark. I mean, there's, there's a lot that I, I guess could, um, could be stated more as well, Jonathan. To me, the argument goes back to the data. I know Jonathan's is different than mine. We differ on this. I, we've probably talked, Jonathan, I don't know how many hours <laughs> we've, we, we've discussed this passage alone, hey. but, uh, <laughs> your argument's going to be more on the empirical data. I look at the earliest witnesses, the way to the manuscripts, uh, considering that there's so much discrepancy, even when it's consistent in a certain manuscript passage and in a certain field, it seems like, and I agree with Dr. Wasserman, that it originated from the West. Uh, that's why we see it first show up in Codex D. Uh, we didn't get to talk much about this, and I know uh, Jonathan really wants to talk about this, so I'll give him this chance. Uh, Jerome talked about yes. many... Uh, many Greek and Latin manuscripts containing uh, this story, obviously, and John. In fact, I was actually a little disappointed we didn't get into some of these discussions in the debate with Jerome. But Jerome mentioned many Greek uh, manuscripts, many Latin manuscripts. Well, Jerome was in the West, fully recognizing that he went down to Alexandria. He had a team of researchers. Uh, Jerome was doing a lot of work to compile uh, what would now be the Latin Vulgate. And, and Jerome had a team working with him. He wasn't doing it by himself. But I agree with Dr. Wasserman. It seems the origin came from the West. And all of these many manuscripts that uh, he talked about, obviously, unfortunately, we don't have any of those representations that came from his stash uh, that he said many. Uh, Augustine mentioned, and, and Jonathan, you could talk about Jerome and Augustine. Augustine mentioned it was being taken out because of the controversy right. about seemed to like produce this concept of women uh, getting away with adultery almost. Yeah. Uh, but I don't think that answers the absence of for Augustine's time. I don't think that answers the East. I don't think that he's in North Africa. Uh, that doesn't answer the absence of it in, uh, in the other manuscripts in different jurisdictions. But it's certainly something that we can't sit there and say, oh, that's dumb. Augustine made that up. No, I, I think he was probably telling the truth there. And, and Jonathan, I know you wanted to talk about Augustine and Jerome, so... Uh, knock it out. That's good, man. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking so forward I, to this one. Yeah, so I, I think it's important to understand, and I know uh, Dr. Boyce actually referred to uh, Dr. Wasserman's theory. Um, and, you know, I think when we look at first what's being said, that, uh, you know, and, and, and so we have to understand if 
this was supplanted or began in the third century. We know that John uh, created his book at Ephesus. It was sent out to the churches. It's well recognized, obviously, prior to the third century in both Greek, Latin, uh, Coptic, uh, Aramaic. Uh, this this book was well established throughout the independent apostolic churches throughout the Roman Empire. Now, what that means is that it not only that uh, it was distributed all over, is that all those copies didn't have this passage originally in them, uh, which means that when we get to uh, Dr. Wasserman's theory, is that its origin begins in a Greek uh, manuscript sometime in the West, and then it makes its way to supplant itself in both texts, the liturgy, and the art in both Greek, Latin, and even in Aramaic, because we see uh, in the apostolic constitutions, the bishops putting it in. Um, we have a mechanism problem or a distribution problem on how this can physically be done without the aid of an ecumenical council, uh, without any type of ripple effect being shown. Uh, and, you know, why this is important, because remember, the churches are, you know, the churches that were set up by the apostles uh, and flourished and came down into the fourth century uh, we're not getting this, uh, this hypothesis or this story coming out of those that were appointed to oversee the churches. Um, and I'll get to Ambrose and uh, not Ambrose, uh, Augustine and Jerome in a second, but it's interesting that the, the Bishop of Milan, uh, specifically Ambrose, who was appointed as bishop over that church, um, specifically states, you know, that it's in the Gospel of John, um, you know, the passage is very famous. He speaks nothing of it being supplanted into his copy that had come down to him or any known history of any type of uh, this passage wasn't original to John. Now, what Ambrose does say uh, pretty specifically is that uh, this scripture, which was in their lectionary system, showing that this gospel uh, lesson was read to the congregation, uh, caused uh, small uh, caused the offense uh, because of what this passage came to be understood that the woman kind of got off scot free. So there's there's no history from Ambrose that this was a passage not original to uh, to John at all. And re remember, the Church of Milan goes back to the beginning. These are uh, these are apostolic churches. He's a bishop appointed to the episcopate. His job was to oversee uh, the text uh, of Scripture and to faithfully hand it on. Um, you know so. When we see from or uh, from Augustine in North Africa, and which we'll tie back to Jerome here in a second, is that once again another bishop of the Apostolic Church in North Africa, which roots go back to the beginning as well. They have apostolic succession; they can trace back. So, in one of these channels in North Africa, the text of John 
has this passage. So not only did this passage would have to been uh, supplanted in northern Italy, and there's no indication from the bishop overseeing that area that such a history was common to that area. In North Africa, uh, Augustine comments multiple times on this particular passage and specifically makes the allegation that the passage was not added, but taken out. Um, you know, once again, Augustine is uh, highly respected uh, in the ancient world. He's a credible witness. Uh, the Greek Orthodox Church references him in the Fifth Ecumenical Council. He has standing, and I think his statement should be taken seriously. And we actually have an allegation that's specific to this discussion Dr. Boyce and I are having where it's taken out for moralistic uh, reasons, which corroborates the problems that another bishop uh, in Milan, that obviously was uh, uh, Augustine's mother's bishop uh, in Milan, that uh, he referenced. So, and if you think about it, Jerome at the same time is working on a massive project for the text. He, he's already explained in his uh, preface to the Gospels that uh, he's investigating textual matters that there's large degrees of variation, and the scope of his project was to resolve these issues, to actually create something much more standardized to deal with these issues. He's trained by Gregory Nazion, so he's obviously been over to Constantinople to learn Greek. Uh, he's been over to Didymus in Alexandria, um, and he has a, an, an entire team and even from Jerome's statement where he makes that the, the passage uh, of the woman in adultery found in the Gospel of John. So once again, another reference to the Gospel of John uh, from Rome, North Africa and Ambrose, where it's all pointing to. Uh, he says it's found in many Greek and Latin. So the tradition uh, is in two major traditions of the apostolic churches. So he does indicate that there's some that didn't have it. But his specific project was to deal with this issue. And I think that, you know, the, the greater thing about uh, Jerome is we understand what his methodology was. You know, so he's doing it by a comparison of Greek manuscripts. And he only used ancient manuscripts. So in 383, and he's it. think about it, he's in Bethlehem, a very dry climate. Uh, what does ancient mean in uh, 383? Is that 3rd century? Is that 2nd? Uh, that could be 1st. Uh, he's obviously well informed of what the issues need to be. And on this particular passage, it, it passed Munster on his uh, Vulgate. Uh, the bishops of North Africa, who was very concerned about what he was doing, especially in light of his translation of Jonah, which caused uh, a big spark in the North African church that uh, uh, got Augustine involved to write to him. He was being watched. Uh, they went through the Gospels, and in almost every passage, they found nothing to object to. Uh, Marcellus was also very uh, concerned that Jerome wasn't changing anything, and he wrote to him as well. So, you know, for me, you know, the big problem is 
it, we have a very credible uh, fathers of the ancient church that are thoroughly investigating sexual matters of this particular uh, time. And we're, we find this passage throughout the ancient world. I mean, we see it in Spain. We see it in North Africa. Uh, there's an allusion to it in Didymus and Alexandria. Uh, obviously, uh, Jerome uh, references it on not only uh, with the in his letter to Pelagius, but he talks about Jesus uh, writing down on the on the ground. Uh, and in not any of these instances do they say that the passage was interpolated. But what Augustine provides, which is later also uh, brought up by Nikon, is that the passage was being taken out. Uh, not that it was being added. Uh, so obviously, I don't want to take the whole time. I want to give uh, Dr. Boyce an opportunity to uh, respond. But the problem is you have to get it into all these locations, the liturgy and also in its culture, uh, without anyone noticing. And the, the history common to these areas demonstrate clearly that they were very aware of attempts to uh, adulterate the text of scripture and what bishop would allow it. And because all these churches go back to the beginning, the natural assumption would be that it was always in the text. And the reason why we find documents, you know, manuscripts that don't have it is because of these allegations that they were being taken out. Yep. And I'll yeah, I, 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 before I jump on that, Jonathan, and I, I know it's getting late here, um, Jonathan Beasley mentioned the fact, and I think it needs to be reiterated because I've read, <laughs> I, I've probably been misrepresented more in one week than my whole life put together. Um, I, I have never heard it, and anybody can go look at it. I never inserted that the story originated at Luke. It was a, in that, like, that's it. Luke created this story, it goes back to him. I make a case that there's good argumentation for it, building off of Kyle Hughes's work that Dr. Wallace gave him to investigate that got published. Uh, and, and like I said, even Keith looked at it and said that it should be considered. Um, I certainly will not stand behind it to the extent of I am 100% sure this came from Luke or I think I have the best argument in the world that makes it a Luke. I was chasing a theory that's been investigated in the academic world about why it ended up where it did, the Lucanisms, all, all of those things assorted. So to be clear, I never said that this story originated from Luke. Uh, I'm not going to dismiss it, but I certainly am not going to uh, dogmatically uh, state it that way. Uh, as far as what you're saying, and I, and I know that you have to make an empirical draw on this, on the church recognizing it, my draw is going to come from the, the evidence of the manuscripts that are before all of the men that you just mentioned. <laughs> Um, so we're talking about it being taken out. Don't deny the fact that happened uh, with Augustine's uh, statement of it, but we have to factor in at some point it was also added in. Uh, we can't just argue one side of it because the earliest ones don't have it. We don't have anything earlier in fifth century that do have it. And I think you would recognize this too, even Jonathan, that some of the earliest uh, translations don't have it. Like in the Coptic churches were considered solid churches, the Sahidic uh, side of it did not have it. Uh, the Ethiopic witnesses, the Gothic, Armenian, and uh, uh, the earliest of the surviving manuscripts from those regions don't have it. And that's consistent with the earliest Greek as well. Uh, there's even Latin texts that don't have it. There's Latin texts that do have it. There's Latin texts that don't have it. 
So, you know, we could see where people are saying, well, it was taken out in places. Well, that doesn't explain the rest of the world being taken out in certain places. Uh, the earliest witnesses of the surviving text, whether it be translation, whether that be from the manuscripts themselves, we are within 100 years of the original autographs of John with P66, P75, consistent transmission from P75 to Vaticanus. We see consistency in those things, and they don't have it. I don't think we should ignore all of the empirical data that you talked about uh, because they obviously recognize this issue. They obviously recognize the variant existed, uh, missing in some and is, is in other. The difference between you and I, Jonathan, is I think it was added later and not much later after the original, not much later after P66, P75. I don't think it just started in the 5th century. Uh, but the earliest surviving data of the manuscript tradition, not just in the Greek, but also in these other regions. And we have to deal with the fact that the way that they're described by these fathers and the way that they're described uh, in all the other uh, um, translations, the ancient translations, do not read exactly the way it reads in the Texas Septus of today. There's details missing, statements missing, there's even adultery missing. There, there's a lot of problems, even if it consistently belongs there, where we have to figure out, well, which one's the right version of this? Yeah, it, you know, my point, it, you know, and it's true. There is documentary evidence, uh, obviously, with P66, uh, P75, obviously, you have Vaticanus and Sinaiticus. Uh, obviously, you know, Dr. Wasserman also pointed out that uh, that the provenance of these texts are suspect in the sense that we don't know who the authors were. Uh, we don't know which groups they belong to. Um, we don't know if it was actually read in any apostolic church. While, um, you know, I, I, I do believe they're well put together. I don't believe they are Gnostic renditions, uh, but I think it's important to note that we had other groups out there, such as the Monetists. We had schematic schismatic groups like the Novations, um, and so there were Orthodox schismatic groups or sects outside that weren't Gnostics that were Orthodox in many ways that we could see not having them. Uh, so the problem that I have with some of these core texts is they they don't look like the texts that are found in the actual churches that we do understand the history, uh, the bishops that were overseeing them, uh, I, I mean, and their liturgy. So what we find is, are those texts represented uh, of the texts of the earlier Greek Orthodox churches? Uh, and, and I can't make a, because we don't know where they come from, it's very hard to say that. But we, we do know who Jerome was. We know his methodology. We know he had a team. We know he had Greek manuscripts. Uh, and we know that uh, the epicenters of Christianity in North Africa, uh, Marcella's letter, everyone was making sure that uh, he was staying true to what he was saying. Uh, and his text had to be vetted. So his Greek text is an early witness. Um, I know Bergen points out uh, that, you know, this, you know, those old Latin lines go back to the, you know, early 200s. Uh, so not only in the Latin, but the Greek documentation he has, 
these churches all go back and what we see throughout the churches is their churches and that requires a physical mechanism to get through something that uh you know earlier attempts to try to supplement the text into the churches didn't go very well uh i mean tertullian brings up about the uh uh the attempts at Ephesus to bring in writings falsely under the name of Paul, yeah. uh, that presbyter was uh, relinquished of his duty. So uh, they were very observant. And now while I, I'm not going to say that it, it couldn't be possible that they could supplement the text, of course they could. Could they get it into a church? Possibly. Bad leadership. We find that all over. Bishops are being disposed. I think but, you would agree. I think you would agree, Jonathan, that the, it, whether it was inserted or deleted, depending on your position, both of those are massive. Um, it would draw attention one way or the other. And the funny thing is, is it didn't draw attention one way or the other. The only evidence of it being actually removed uh, the way that Augustine described it, which was only one section of the world that he, he was familiar with that being done at, even if it were inserted or deleted the church as a whole didn't seem to comment on one way or the other. And so I think at the end of the day, and, I'm, and, and we'll probably wrap it up here, uh, Jonathan, uh, but obviously you go off the empirical data. I look at the manuscript data, and that's where you and I uh, go separate ways. And, uh, I, and, and uh, you're, you're, I'm, I'm, I'm a former Baptist that's recovering. You're an Anglican, so I'm still praying for your salvation. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so... But it, it was it was good, and I think you know this is a good spot for us. And and I think that's a great argument. I think that is the argument for it belonging is actually uh, Josh is uh, is it's Jonathan's view of the empirical data and how he references Ambrose as well as he does his Jerome. I think that is the best argument. I think it's a better argument than a lot of the typical arguments you hear from the Texas Receptus arguments. Uh, I think it actually makes the most sense. Yeah. I still think there's consistency issues. Uh, I still think there's how how do we know which wording of it is right? But I think if there is an argument that should be made, I think Jonathan actually has one of the better arguments for it. See, and that's what I was telling Jonathan uh, maybe a couple of weeks ago. I was like, dude, you've got one of the best arguments of anybody out there. I mean, because he's his, his argument with a with the chain of custody is really good. I think that when you you look at the references of the ecclesiastical usage as it being documented and, and circulated and accepted and in, in conjunction with forgeries and heresies and all of these things that were rejected uh, at the same time. I think that he does have a really good argument. I'm looking forward to seeing what he does with Richard Carrier uh, coming up later this week. That's going to be a lot of fun. So, um, And, you know, the evidence, again, like you and I were talking about, Stephen, we're all looking at the same evidence. I, I, I think that at the end of the day, whether it's, I don't, I can't tell you what it is. I haven't put, been able to put my finger on it, but whether it's a bias or a presupposition or something that, something is separating the the different camps saying, well, it's authentic, it's not authentic, because you're saying, well, it's an interpolation from the Greek to the Greek. It was early because it's referenced in the Gospel of Hebrews. Maybe Luke wrote it, maybe he didn't, but at some point somebody brought it into John. We don't know who, we don't know when. And Jonathan has got an argument that goes, we know who, we know when, it's, it, it's been here and here and here, and it's, it made it over here. And, you know, it's like, gosh, man, I, you know, it, 
I need the evidence to see, like, who brought it in? When did they bring it in? When was the first time that we saw it in the Greek? Who introduced it? Like, why wasn't it recognized? And that's something that Jonathan brings back, brings out is like, man, we noticed all these other false gospels come in. We noticed the, uh, the stuff that Martian was bringing in. Why didn't we bring this up? Like, why is it just now an issue? You know, or at yeah, least, and, so. Yeah, yeah, and, and where I usually push back on Jonathan, he'll just push back, and we push back, and we get nowhere, <laughs> but uh, is that though these statements are made about him being early in, in many manuscripts in the Hebrew, the uh, Latin, and the Greek, when we look at the manuscripts that predated those men, none of them have it. So it's kind of like, I'm not saying they're all liars, uh, but at the same time, the physical evidence that survived in these other manuscripts that represent different jurisdictions, it's like, well, I can see what they're saying, but uh, but there's still evidence where it looks like it was added later. So it, it, it's not a done deal for me in that way as it would be for Jonathan. And uh, But I like Jonathan Sheffield. Like I said, I'm still praying for his Anglican self to get saved. Uh, but other than that, uh, we're, we're, we're pretty, we're pretty good friends about it. Even when we sit here and talk on the phone for hours about the differences of views on different texts and stuff. So I appreciate Jonathan taking his time. He's busy. He's got a, yeah. uh, a lot going on and, uh, you know, he and I've talked about this for, uh, hours on end as well as our desires really to go out and, and discuss the canon and text to atheists and things like that. And, uh, there's opportunities right down the road for me where I'm going to be engaging more of that and talking. Canon is far more exciting for me than textual criticism, although I love both. Uh, but I appreciate Jonathan. He's busy and he took the time to come out and review this with me. I wanted to get an opinion so that I just didn't get an amen choir. Uh, it seems like yeah. that happens uh, a, a lot, and I, I didn't. I didn't want that. I wanted to do a very balanced as possible um, examination. That's good. I'm glad that you guys came out and were willing to come on and to do this and uh, and and for letting me participate a little bit. I kind of interjected there. I know it's supposed to be mostly no, between no, you fine. guys, but I'm fine. like, ah, oh, man, I want to jump in on some of these. But um, you know what? It's good. I'm glad we were able to do this. I'm glad you guys were willing to do it. And uh, I, I don't. I, I. It's getting late. I mean, we're at two hours and twenty minutes. <laughs> yeah. I normally we would go to questions from the audience, and I know that you guys have got a ton of questions, but. Um, I've got I've got to get up for work in about four and a half hours. So, yeah. Anyways, um, Jonathan, did you have anything that you wanted to say? No, you know the the purpose of coming on here with uh, Doctor Voice was obviously to uh, go over you know my views on uh, the debate review. Obviously, we couldn't spend hours like Doctor Voice and I talking about the PA. So I I just want to go over some of the central arguments. Uh, how I look at things. Uh, obviously, as an Anglican, uh, these aren't specifically my views. Uh, you know, Irenaeus, Tertullian, um, Augustine argued in a very similar fashion as well. Uh, so I, I think uh, I don't want to take all the credit for it, but uh, kind of plagiarizing uh, their statements from the ancient world. But I, I think this was a really good, healthy discussion. Um, yeah. You know, Dr. Boyce and I are not going to always agree on everything, but I, I think we both understand that we have a reverence for Scripture and establishing the preservation of the text, and uh, I, I, I think we have very good intentions on both sides uh, in making our arguments. That's good stuff, man. Awesome. Well, I think that's going to be a wrap for today's episode, so thanks again for coming on. You guys are both welcome back anytime, and... Uh, 
Uh, good luck with Dr. Carrier and everything that you're doing there. And Stephen, um, I know you've, you're busy with uh, ministry stuff and, and life and work and all that. I mean, so, yeah, and all these debates. And so, yeah, it's good to see you active out there and, and watching it and for me to be able to watch those and piggyback off of it. So thank you guys for contributing contributing, and uh, for coming on tonight. So, Thanks, Josh. All right. Thanks, Josh. Well, have a good night. I'm going to cut to our closing scene here and give you guys an update where we're going if it's going to cut to the closing scene. Having issues with my tech. I need to get a better computer, guys, so we'll figure it out. <laughs> All right. So um, it looks like uh, coming up, don't forget this weekend at on May 31st, 2 p.m., I'm debating the Eucharist with Matthew Broderick. Um, we talk about the means that God uses for salvation. One of the means that a Catholic uses um, as an argument that, that uh, you have to receive the Eucharist um, in order to obtain salvation is what we're going to be debating uh, this weekend. I think that's a huge topic when we're dealing with salvation. Uh, and for me personally, it's, man, is it, is it the finished work of Christ? Or is it, is it the finished work of Christ and something that you have to do? And, and maybe I'm oversimplifying it there, but that's something to consider, guys. Uh, that good debate with Matthew Broderick. I know that he's he's had a few uh, moderated debates in the past and has been in this for probably 20, 30 years or so. But then we've got Kevin Thompson again is coming on June 28th at 2 p.m. Uh, that'll be a good conversation to talk about Calvinism. We both think Calvinism is wrong. He gets a rap for being an anti-Calvinist. If you know much about anti-Calvinism, you've heard of Kevin Thompson. So uh, that should be a good conversation as well. And finally, we've got the eschatology debate on the 14th with myself and Stacy Turbeville. Uh, he's a full preterist, and I'm a, a partial preterist. So that'll be a good conversation to take consideration as well when you consider Matthew 24, Luke 21, Daniel 9, Revelation 6 through 19, and various passages that deal with the end time. So stay tuned for all that, guys. Um, thank you for tuning in tonight. Please like, share, subscribe, and uh, help get this uh, video out there and for the audio as well. Don't forget, we are on all the audio podcasts, the major ones at least, uh, if you want to listen on audio as opposed to visual. So anyways, that's all I got, guys. God bless and have a good night.